This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, January the 30th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Paddy Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Let's get at it. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So you heard Mr. Medora talk about his struggles to clear the driveway this morning and the vehicle. Of course, yeah, nothing like it getting up in the morning, get a little sweat going with your shovel, and my vehicle was a snow drift. As was one of the people who I was following on the Outer Ring Road coming, this mor- coming to work this morning, driving a truck with a tonneau cover, zero visibility out the back window, the big snow drift from the top of his truck to the back of his tonneau cover, and he thought, ah, that's good enough, I'll go on. All right, by-election day, Conception Bay, East Bell Island. Again, some consternation uh, from some corners yesterday when elections on L decided to postpone the by-election scheduled for yesterday, move it to today. Now, with the worst of the weather happening around when people are getting off work in a normal 9-to-5 schedule, and yes, historically speaking, many people do indeed choose to go vote after they finish their work day, and that would have been some pretty dicey weather. So the move has been made. We'll see what kind of turnout we get in Conception Bay, East Bell Island, but I'm going to take it on. Let's go. So the Growler struggling mightily on the road, but the Rogues not so much. So they took the series uh, against the KW Titans, 2 out of 3, down at Mary Brown Center, off to a pretty fa- flying start. And they've got one guy who's lighting it up, Armani Cheney. He had a 34-point night, 10 assists in the Sunday victory of 107-102. So the Rogues are hot to get her going. And the Briar representatives for the province and the Scotties representatives have been settled. So a busy week at the Remax Center last week, through the week, and of course into the weekend with the playdowns. So Team Curtis, Stacey Curtis, they'll be representing the province at the Scotties Tournament of Hearts next month in Calgary. So members of the team, Stacey Curtis, Erica Curtis, Camille Burt, Julie Hines, and Jessica Wiseman. On the men's side, Team Simmons are going to be representing us at the Briar coming up in uh, March in Regina. So Andrew Simmons is the skip. Stephen Trickett, Alex Smith, Colin Thomas, and David Noftel. Great story regarding Alex Smith, member of Team Simmons. It's his second Briar. His first one, 1989. 35 years in between. He was the youngest skip at the Briar that year in Saskatchewan and, you know, goes on to recount that it was pretty overwhelming. Some 8,000 people in the Saskatel Arena and so he's going back 35 years later as a member of Team Simmons and, of course, we've got Team Guju playing as Team Canada in the Briar. Also, I'm not exactly sure what the standings are, but Kaylee Locke and Simon Perry are a couple of high schoolers. They're representing the country in curling mixed doubles at the 2024 Winter Youth Olympics. I think they might be 3-0 so far in round-robin play, but if you have to take on any of that you know what to do back to the ice for a second how about this for fantastic news so maggie connors had a great run playing in the ncaa at princeton she got drafted to play in the professional women's hockey league she was player of the game the first game the inaugural game of the season she's gone on to score a goal and now for the first time she's making her debut for the national team the senior women's national team maggie connors has been named to the 24 player roster they're going to take on the americans in the tune-up of the 2023-24 rivalry series so a couple of games coming up in saskatoon and regina 
on the 7th of February and the 9th of February. Maggie Connors gets to make her debut with the Canada Canadian Women's National Team. That is absolutely brilliant news and good for her. Another quick one on the sports side before we get to anything else you want to talk about. When the St. John's Edge came to town to play some professional basketball, by and large, their success was driven by the presence of Carl English. Carl was a standout at the University of Hawaii, had a pretty solid pro career playing around the world, and of course, to have him as part of the Edge was a huge draw for the fans. He was the league MVP in the first season. He brought the team to the finals, the league finals in his second season, did not come back for the third and final season with the St. John's Edge, all based on contractual disputes. And now, lo and behold, he's suing the owners. So the owners were Irwin Simon, who came to town, you know, with the chest puffed out as, you know, man got some money, fair enough. So the uh, other co-owner, Rob Sabah. So apparently, they stopped paying English his monthly salary. He sued them for over $130,000. We'll see where that lands, but I guarantee you, the vast majority of the tickets that were sold in support of the St. John's Edge were because Carl English was on the floor. And, of course, then you bring Big Baby Davis, Glenn Big Baby Davis, to town for the uh, 2019 season. But English, taking him to court. Good for you, I'd say. All right, this is another great piece of news before we get to issues that may not be so great. So the mayor of Dover since 1996 is, of course, Tony Keats. Tony used to be the president of MNL as well, and we're happy to have Mayor Keats on the show this morning if he's so inclined. Did uh, Linda talk about this yesterday, Dave? Just curious. So, and big thanks, Linda, for sitting in for me yesterday. So Tony Keats has been given the 2023 World Mayor Community Award for his extraordinary service to the town and the people, of course, as the aforementioned date of 1996. The list of commendations and the things that are people uh, from Dover, those who are not only working for the town, but the residents of the town, what they're saying and thinking about Mr. Keats is absolutely extraordinary. So congratulations, Mayor Keats, the 2023 World Mayor Community Award. Pretty cool. All right, let's move on. So with the storm yesterday and the ongoing conversation regarding homelessness and people on the verge of homelessness or living in precarious situations, remember when the government said there will be no one living in tent city by Christmas. How they chose Christmas, I don't really know. But as of yesterday, we were told that there were some six people still living in tents behind the colonial building. A lot of the conversation has shifted and or community worry, concern or commentary has kind of stalled out. It all seems to be lined up with the province's announcement to lease the Comfort Inn. And plenty of questions yet to be asked about that. So lease the Comfort Inn for three years to the cost of some $21 million for the so-called transitional housing and the wraparound supports that will be included. We're still not really sure what staffing looks like. We're still not really sure what the total cost will look like because inside that $21 million, it does not include the three meals per day for 365 days per year times three. So there's still more money is going to be attached to it. I know the official opposition, the PCs yesterday, put out another press release with their ongoing questions and concerns, not only about how we've arrived here, but still some of the looming questions about how it's going to operate. So we can absolutely take it on from any angle. I've heard from many people living in the Airport Heights area, they're displeased for obvious reasons and some of their worries. And if it's not this move, you know, wonder what the move will be. Whether or not people are going to come at it from a variety of angles, right, is, well, Everyone should be self-reliant, but there's, of course, a lot of complexities involved with folks who may find themselves uh, without a home to call their own at this point. At this point. But homelessness comes with a cost to all of us. 
It simply does. You know, we've looked at housing examples and best practices elsewhere about how they approach it versus the staggered or uh, the laddered system that we have versus the move to more permanent solutions. And I'm not talking about giving away everything, just, you know, open up the doors, here's the checkbook, we just start writing checks. No, the supports have to be in place, but you would hope, in addition to wraparound supports for mental and physical illness, there will also be concerted effort to try to help people to get back on track. You know, and what that means, I guess, would be a different definition in different corners, but that's got to be a key focus inside that comfort in as well, in my personal opinion. You want to talk about it. Let's do exactly that. All right. And gosh, probably an unfortunate segue, but for the second time since the Quebec Superior Court struck down the federal government's expansion of MAID, the medical assistance in dying, that happened back in 2016, now the federal government are seemingly looking for another pause. Yesterday, outside the House of Commons, Health Minister Mark Holland and Justice Minister Varani said that the Canadian mental health system and system in general is not ready to expand medical assistance in dying for people whose sole issue is mental illness. It's an important pause. So there has a, a committee has been struck by some 15 MPs and senators. They were tasked by the feds to look at whether or not the system is prepared for this expansion. Medical assistance in dying, conceptually speaking, is maybe an excellent option or idea for some whose prognosis is dire. Their suffering is extraordinary. But this expansion into mental illness really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It really, truly doesn't. We've heard stories of Canadian veterans being offered made before offering anything else. We've heard stories come from Manitoba that some additional supports in the home would allow people to continue to live, albeit in continuous pain, but manageable. And what happened? They were given medical assistance in dying. I know this is a, a traumatic conversation, but it's one that we have to have. Here's, to me, what the most important feature is regarding that potential expansion, which I really don't like the sound of. So when the committee was struck, and they had a bunch of people testify about the system and the possible expansion, and psychiatrists were clear. They told the committee it would be difficult, if not impossible, for medical professionals to decide whether mental illness is beyond treatment. If that's the case, and it very likely is, given the testimony offered by psychiatrists, how can it possibly be expanded, period? Here's some numbers, and they're pretty big. Last year alone, there was 13,241 people received medical assistance in dying. That was a jump of some 31.2% over 2021. Since the legislation came to pass in 2016, almost 45,000 people have received medical assistance in death at that, in that time frame. So... If this is something of concern to you, and I would imagine it is, as opposed to taking it from the extreme different angle of ensuring that the types of supports, access, and treatment, long-term and otherwise, for people suffering with mental illness, let's start there. Let's make that the priority, as opposed to this type of proposed expansion. Really important conversation, and I get it. It's emotional, and it can be very traumatic, but the feds, not only should they stall, they should absolutely walk away from that, in my personal opinion. What do you think? Now, apparently, Jerry Lynn Mackey told me this morning there was a caller that thought the exact opposite, and fair enough. Your opinion is uh, absolutely as valuable as mine, and the conversation is important. So if you disagree or agree with what you hear on this program, for me or other callers, emailers, whatever, we welcome it. And we look forward to speaking with you this morning. One story that got tons of traction and all of a sudden kind of got, you know, sidetracked when affordability issues became the real 
public debate, politically and otherwise. But now that the, we are into the uh, inquiry into foreign interference in elections, it's officially called the Public Inquiry into Foreign Interference in Federal Electoral Processes and Democratic Institutions. Basically talk about China predominantly, but also Russia, and their interference in the 2019-2021 federal elections and prior to that. We're kidding ourselves if we don't think that uh, foreign bad actors have been trying to wiggle in on and influence and interfere in our elections and we have to assure that the integrity of these institutions is protected because no matter who you're going to vote for that's important it absolutely is critically important here's the problem so we know that the uh, commissioners marie jose hogg not only before we understand how much information is going to be disclosed publicly and you know pardon me before we understand exactly what happened they've got to figure out a way to understand how much information is going to be shared with the public my worry and many people's worry is given the sensitivity of some of the documentation they're going to get we're not going to see a whole whole lot more than we already have now the government tripped themselves up by appointing david johnson as the special repertoire which and then his recommendation was no inquiry, which was really wrong-headed. I'm glad this is happening. So there's going to be some arguments about who gets full standing versus intervener standing. There are indeed members of the NDP and the Conservatives who have been giving full standing as opposed to simply intervener standing. So I think that gives the representation of the different parties. And let's hope this doesn't turn into political theater because that's in nobody's best interest. But here's the thing. So 80% of the documents already given to the commission and their lawyers are called top secret or even higher clearance. So we're not going to see what's inside that. You know, the main deed we talk about the methods that the CSIS uses to gather intelligence, our membership and our working relationship with the five eyes, also talk about technologies and people's lives at risk and all those different concerns. It'd be great to know, and hopefully, when all sides have agreed that Marie-José Hogue is the right person for the job, they've agreed on the terms of reference, so we'll inevitably see some political battles taking place here, but this is bigger than the political parties. We see how it's dismantled some democracies or republics in this world when the faith in the elections has been eroded to the point where they simply don't trust it. So let's see where that goes. But we can take on any angle there, as much as we probably don't have a whole lot of details to discuss, but that's a big one and it's ongoing right now on the national side. Okay, a couple of quick ones before we get back to you. How are we doing out there, Dave? This was an announcement we were waiting to hear from the Federal Fisheries Minister, uh, Diane or Diane Leboutier, and this is about redfish. Okay, so you've heard the story, shrimp license holders on the south and the west coast, they wanted out of the business, they were hoping to get bought out, they wanted to see some of their livelihood and revenue side attached to redfish. So the fishery uh, for the commercial fishery redfish has been shuttered since 1995 in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. It's got a huge, strong uh, biomass of some 4 million metric tons. Basically, Nova Scotia has been the only crowd going at it, and now that's changed. The problem for people in this province is, I don't know exactly what the FFAW was hoping for, but they were probably, you know, like usual, hoping to get as much of it as possible, like you would. The thought was maybe 50% of the redfish in the total allowable catch will be caught by Newfoundland Labrador harvesters, maybe some additional processing. It's not a big fillet fish, a pretty small fish itself, but it looks like now it's th this decision. It's going to be shared amongst a variety of different groups, and the percentage of the tack for this province, less than 25%. So certainly nowhere near what the FFAW and local harvesters were hoping for. I don't know what that translates to with the ability for a full reliance on redfish 
by these shrimp license holders, it probably doesn't present enough opportunity, not only to re replace the price and the revenue associated with shrimp, but it really does bring a big question into, is that enough to gear up on the processing side? So whether Mr. Spingle or Mr. Purdy or anyone at the FFAW would like to help break that down, because 50% of that tack absolutely could have seen a significant redfish fishery in this province at 20 less than 25 percent probably not so but I'll, I'll let them break it down much better than i possibly can a couple of quick ones before we get to you a little bit brighter look at the beta north project still don't know whether or not it'll ever go and proceed that's equinor and the partners at bp but the project manager has been ro relocated from Norway. The Hercules semi-submersible drill rig is coming this summer, and that is an extremely expensive exercise, so they're not just doing that for kicks. So still maybe some optimism on that side and on the exact opposite side of that coin. And I will never understand in full how people get so upset when anyone dares talk about electric vehicles. Buy one or don't. Like the federal government currently with their whole phasing out internal combustion engines by 2035 and replace them with EVs. Look, for some people and what they need a vehicle for, an EV in its current state of technology and innovation is probably not good enough. And yes, parts of the country that experience extremely cold temperatures and the EV, you know, the range falls off. If you look at Norway, and, you know, it's always a bit of a fool's errand to do that. But you look at Norway, how they approach the electric vehicle world and the cold temperatures that they experience. Yes, the full, char full charge range can drop off as much as 30%. It's absolutely real. That's what they experience in other cold climates. But the, obviously, I didn't hear the show yesterday. But looking through my email that came in overnight, obviously, Linda was talking about it with somebody. John Seri was probably on the show, if I'm just going to guess. The number of absolutely furious emails is alarming. You know, at this stage, yes, there's still huge questions to be asked. And if the feds are going to push this like they currently are, they play an active role ensuring that the grid can keep up with it. Because at this moment in time, with all the transitions we're seeing, and yes, for more electric vehicles, of which we're still talking about very small numbers, 1,241 EVs in the province, 526 new electric vehicles registered last year, 2,722 hybrids registered in the province. So we're not talking about an enormous fleet here, but people get really, really mad. And there's still lots to understand. If you're talking about your footprint, fine. If you're talking about cost of operation, which I think is probably the most attractive issue, when people look at EVs, and even in the world of internal combustion engines, just trying to buy a new car is extremely expensive. You know, average price of a mid-sized sedan in this, in this country is somewhere around $66,000. Then you look at the price of a used car. It's doubled since 2019. So transportation and transportation-related matters are the furthest thing from cut and dry, but the electric vehicle numbers, I'll share the numbers based on information. That's it. You want one? Okay. You don't? At this stage, fine. Buy whatever you like. But, man, I tell you, to read the emails is really, really something else. Okay, last two, two before we get to you. And this is a back into the envelope of good news, terrific news. Four students from this province are part of what they're calling an illustrious group of high school students trying to win a very prestigious scholarship called the Lorenz Scholarship. It's worth about $100,000. So, big deal. It's given to only 36 students across the country annually, and it's not just about their academic achievements. It's also their work in their community, what have you. Every finalist, of which there's uh, 90 at this moment in time before they carve it down to 36 out of 5,200 applicants, every finalist or each finalist gets $6,000. Four from this province. 
It's terrific stuff. Congratulations and good luck to Aiden Sampson of St. Louis, Sadie McDonald of Cornerbrook, Abby Welchman of Mount Moriah, and Hannah Moores of Grand Falls winner. They're all in the run. The last stage in Toronto with, I think, four different interviews. But this is tremendous achievement for them. Since uh, the Lorenz Scholarship has been awarded over the course of 34 years, four, uh, pardon me, 46 scholarships to students from this province. 42 of them went to, on to attend Memorial University. So congratulations, good, uh, congratulations and good luck to all four from here. And if you want to take on the education court, you know me, I'm, a, I'm all about it. We're on Twitter, we're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. The topic, up to you. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board on line number one. Good morning, Joy. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. Um, something I know you've brought up several times, and Linda brought it up yesterday, as the Canada Junior Hockey under 18, that scandal. And um, Are you talking about the World Junior team? Sure. 2018? Yeah. yeah, okay. Yes, I am. And uh, now, I mean, I, uh, there's not many Newfoundlanders biting on this. And I'm, I come from a family that a lot of hockey involved. I mean, my father played, my father coached minor. My brothers played minor and junior. I played women's hockey. My son played minor. So, you know, not a stranger to this, but very, very disappointing on a lot of angles on what has happened here. And uh, to have a woman gang raped in 2018 and she go to police in London and they see nothing wrong now all of a sudden and I agree that they are obviously trying to talk to those guys five six years later but finally it's out and then of course I watched the the two uh, two show series from Fifth Estate, Anatomy of a Scandal. Did you see that? I did not see that, but I'm pretty in tune with the story, as disgraceful as it Mm. is. Yeah, I mean, they had a guy there that discussed it and talked about this is not new to these junior hockey teams. It's been going on for years. And they have this little ritual, apparently, that, you know, I guess it's in their young eyes that they feel they actually, you know, embarrass the girl besides raping her, you know, sits her on a chair and gets her to put on tape that she's a volunteer in these proceedings, what happened, you know, and this type of thing. Yeah, Joe, I don't think there's any such thing that this is some sort of tradition with every edition of Team Canada. I really don't believe that to be true. Uh, I've known some uh, players that have played on that team, and uh, there's no way I believe that that's part of the official process or unofficial process but one of these guys has already turned himself in and has been charged the guy's name I is know, Alex guy came from Switzerland uh, yeah I know yep. but I mean the thing is is you know you have you have these guys that, that would they have turned themselves in Patty unless this came out absolutely not you know you have you have Hockey Canada that protected them they did and 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 paid out millions of dollars over the years from money from you know people trying to keep their kids in hockey it's 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 a luxury now to have your kid in hockey we all know that it costs a fortune you know and here they are passing passing out money to women to shut their mouths terrible now it's not only women i i understand that there's other people that got got these 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 checks as well but i mean when people sit down and are writing out these checks 
don't you think that they should have some sort of complicitness in this? Is is that not some kind of misappropriation of funds or something? Yeah. Are they going to get away with all this? Well, they've all, they mean, they had clean house at Hockey Canada, and rightfully so. If there's anything else coming civilly or criminally, I don't know. But I guarantee, as someone who has been involved with hockey throughout the course of my life, to yeah. know that some of the fees that I paid for my kids to play, yeah. and as a member of an executive, knowing that we were running a hockey association, the fees that we we're paying to Hockey Canada, some of which were being directed to pay off people who came forward with these allegations and, in essence, swept the issue under the rug. Yeah. Entirely disgraceful. What is next for them, I certainly do not know. But as a hockey guy, I'm really disheartened that... Yeah. You know, hockey gets that black eye. Look, if people have done anything wrong, including these uh, alleged assaults, I hope they are they pay the price in full. The unfortunate reality for hockey people is this is not just a hockey story. This is, a, is a right across the gamut. There's actually been lots of attention here in North America, specifically in Canada and the United States, looking at uh, especially high-level sports and the amount of abuse mentally, emotionally, yeah. physically, sexually that takes place. So we've got to figure this out because we encourage people to play for all the right reasons the life skills the camaraderie the athleticism you know give them something to do as opposed to the idle hands which is the devil's playground as people say so this story is really upsetting to me personally and i would imagine to anyone who's following it well i mean the thing is patty is you know some of these cases uh, for a woman to go for help to the police to different people, and nobody helped her. Finally, she just took the check and said, okay, fine. But then she did whistleblow, and good on her for doing that. Absolutely. You know, I mean, they have written 21 checks. That's crazy. To the tune of $8.9 million. Now, again, not all of them refer to women, but, you know, and and the other end of it is, is, would this have actually blown up as badly as it did for, for Hockey Canada if all the sponsors didn't pull out? And I'm happy they did, because it should have. And, and you know, you, you have these, well, one of them turned himself in, and now I'm hearing a number of eight. First it was five, then it's eight. But, you know, there's a lot more than that. You know yourself if you've got a group of 16, 17, 18-year-olds that have four or five and gang raped a girl. They all knew about it because they can't shut their mouths at that age. You know, I mean, and, and when you say that you don't think it was a ritual, well, watching that scandal show, that, that, that anatomy of a scandal, that has happened several times. There's another major investigation into 2002, 2003. Yeah. yeah. So I hope that the investigations are exhaustive and comprehensive, and yeah. anybody who deserves to be charged should be charged. I'm all for it. I mean, I promote sports all the time, and I, I do it from a good place, understanding what sports can mean, yeah. the overall benefits, but this stuff is just, it's infuriating. It, it really, truly is. And, you know, some people, are, I was told via email a couple of times that, you know, I'm surprised you're even talking about it, given the fact you're always promoting sports. Well, I'm not afraid to talk about the bad stuff either, because the bad stuff, unless we shine a bright light on it, it continues to happen. In Canada, it, it, hockey is, is our thing. It is. And, and it's, it's disappointing. And as I said, it's, it's now a luxury to be able to have your child play. Yes, some, some areas, you know, you get some help. But when that money is misspent, then, you know, there's just so much wrong with all of this coming. I'm happy it did. But it should never be coming out because it should never be happening. But anyway, that's 
You know, it's been in my craw for, what, a year and a half now since this has been blowing up a bit. And the story is far from told in full yeah. as of yet. Uh, Joy, I'm glad you called. As frustrating as it is, it's something we have to talk about. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. And what comes next for people who are writing those checks and, in essence, just sweeping these serious crimes, allegations of crimes, under the rug? I mean... These people should have to be held to account. What that looks like, I'm not entirely sure, but it's a good question posed by Joy. Uh, let's go. Before we get to the break, let's go to line four. Jeannie, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning. Um, just uh, wanted to find out if there's any uh, truth to what I'm reading on Google Uh-oh. about the seniors uh, getting an increase. To what? To the old age. To old age security? Yes. Okay, so what are you reading? So, because I don't know what you're seeing. Oh well, there's so much of reading on it. They just can't make uh, like just one, a couple of sentences, and explain it in our terms instead of putting all these big words into it. They're saying you're supposed to be getting four hundred and sixty dollars for this, four hundred and some odd dollars for this, if you qualify. But I'm just, uh, this is what I'm reading on Google. So I don't know what's going on. And my friends are the very same way. They told me you should call up and talk to Patty. Sure. Well, there's a couple of things that have changed. There's a change to the maximum, the caps for the, for CPP. Of course, last year, I'm pretty sure it was last year, there was an increase to old age security, but only for folks 75 years of age and older. And that was a 10% increase. So those two things are very real and absolutely verifiable uh, with not really Known exactly what you're referring to as to what you're reading. Jeannie, if you're using Google, you must have an email account, right? Yes, I do. Okay, if you send me whatever you got, I'll verify it or shoot it down as best I can. Okay, so, now do that. It's just open line at FIOCM.com because it's hard for me to say yes, that's real or no, it's not when I'm not entirely sure what we're talking about. But you send mm-hmm. me that email, I'll have a look and I'll figure it out for you. All right, and thank you so much. Thank you, Jeannie. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, there's lots of changes coming. And then we're talking about uh, age transitioning from 65 for eligibility to 67. So there's a lot of things happening in the world of seniors' benefits. And, of course, pension pay dates. Uh, Yesterday was pension pay date for the month of January 2024. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, oh, there we go. We're talking about the redfish allocation. And Jason Spingle is the secretary-treasurer with the FFAW. We'll talk about that and whatever else right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Secretary-Treasurer with the FFAW. That's Jason Spingle. Jason, you're on the air. Uh, morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Yeah, I'm pulled over here in uh, beautiful Grossmore Park here, so I think the service will be okay, but... Uh, hasn't been any interruption, but I just wanted to give you that notice there. Yeah, so, uh, you know, you uh, mentioned the announcement from uh, the minister on Friday. I mean, we were literally appalled, given that we just met with her literally a week before that, face-to-face, had a great meeting, and her words were, I'm going to do, uh, you know, I'm going to do my best to look out for the shrimpers. Uh, in, uh, and that includes our fleet here on the West Coast, as well as, you know, her own her own constituents right in her own backyard in Quebec and also our colleagues in New Brunswick. And, you know, this, this announcement is as far away from that as you basically can get. And I just want to set the background a bit here, I guess, so people understand. In the, we'll say, 70s and 80s, 
uh, ground fish was the predominant, uh, you know, there was hundreds of thousands of tons of ground or tens of thousands of tons of cod and redfish. And that fish was caught by, a lot of it was caught by, uh, they might have called them offshore at the time. I don't know what the word was, right? Because we get caught up in this offshore inshore uh, issue. Uh, but th- these vessels were basically 120 feet, uh, wet, uh, but they were wet fish trawlers. They were captained and crewed by people all over Atlantic Canada, but certainly by people from uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, the south coast in particular. You know, heard many of the stories from communities like Burgio and Galtus and, and Ramia, uh, you know, and, and uh, that fish was caught in the south coast and in the Gulf of St. Lawrence and brought back to plants in the same communities. So, you know, it was not an, an, like, you know, my definition of an offshore fishery is clearly a factory freezer that processes at sea. So it was not offshore fishery. So Mother Nature and or whatever else you want to blame it on, you know, some people will talk about excessive fishing. I think it was a large degree, like a lot of things. The ground fish collapsed and shellfish uh came up so that fleet those fleets disappeared they disappeared and for the last 30 years we've had uh and 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 our fleets were also fishing they've expanded and invested and you've had about roughly 80 boats at the peak fishing shrimp in the gulf of st lawrence almost exclusively shrimp you know basically no kind very little redfish almost nothing in the past decade uh even very little before that uh you had a you know an industry that supported the northern peninsula uh, the Gas Bay Peninsula, the Shippigan uh, Karakat area of New Brunswick. We're talking about five processing plants, you know, uh, 1,500 to 2,000 really good-paying jobs. And now, you know, one of the things that was implemented back uh, in the 90s for the shrimp was uh, a Nordmore grate because a shrimp trawl, as everyone knows, I think this is important details, has very small mesh, so it, 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 it will catch everything. But yep. they invented a great device that allowed allowed the ground fish to escape, and only basically, other than, you know, very small fish, made, made that fishery basically a clean fishery. And now, that have helped for halibut to to boom, for example, um, and uh, it's, it's uh, part of the reason that I think we have this uh, you know, I think Mother Nature is a factor as well. This boom with redfish, and what have the redfish done? They've eaten all the shrimp. So we've got we've got all these boats, all these plants, all these jobs in peril. We know that redfish is going to take some development. We know there's going to be struggles, but you would you would logically t- and in the meantime, yes. The other important point: there's so many details here, I guess, and you know. We could probably talk about the whole morning, and I know you don't have the time for that, but I'll get this last background point in. In the meantime, these quote-unquote offshore companies were given quotas uh, uh, of shrimp, turbot, in, in uh, you know, these type of opportunities in, uh, in uh, the Labrador Sea. And it's not like they were left with nothing at all. They, you know, they... they They've had uh, excellent opportunities, and they've developed their fleets accordingly. So where we're at now is people saying, you know, I heard a Saudi article, you probably saw it, a reference to the jobs in Nova Scotia. I need someone to show me where redfish have meant one job. I don't know. I don't think there were very many jobs in Nova Scotia in, in the 70s and 80s, up to the time it closed, let alone now. 
But I can point to you, and you I don't need to. You know about the jobs in Anchor Point and in port and in Rivio-Renard and in Carriquet and all those vessels and all those communities along. So uh, this decision now, basically, you know, I'm, I'm on the way to meet the fleet here now. I know there's, rightfully so, there's going to be anger, but I think even more so there's just going to be desperation. And we just can't believe that, you know, we're in this situation. We had a hundred, you know, we had, I don't know what to say, a hundred meetings on this over the past four or five years. We did projects to try to develop a sustainable fishery because we can't have halibut, um, you know, we got a halibut fishery that overlaps with where the redfish are. That's important to uh, uh, over 600 harvesters here on the west and southwest coast now as a part of their income. Mm-hmm. Let's if break it down. If dealt with properly, then, you know. Let's, so anyway, let's break this down a little further, down, though, Jason. We're, we're in a tough shape. Hold yeah. on a second. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. for starters, probably a good place to begin is exactly what's entailed in the decision. So we know that the total allowable catch is going to be 25,000 tons. So how, what percentage of that is coming to this province? I was using the number close to 25. What is it? No. So it's 10% for shrimpers. Again, that's all shrimpers throughout the uh, Gulf of St. Lawrence. You know, if you want to look at the boats, we've got about 35 enterprises in Newfoundland. There's about a similar number in Quebec. I don't have exact. And there's, you know, upwards of 8 to 10 in New Brunswick. So that's got to be shared amongst all of them. Then you have another component of that 25%, which is otter trawl. We don't know the details on this yet. Is that for shrimpers and otter trawlers? Uh, I would expect this for all otter trawlers, but, you know, uh, they're supposed to be a meeting on Friday to get some of this clarification. But to this province, it uh, would be much, much less than 25%, Patty, much, okay. much less. But, I mean, the, the boat, the boats in, in, in uh, like, if you take the amount of fish, roughly, I mean, that's not even a trip of fish for each shrimper that's basically put out of business. And that's the other thing. We're down to 3,000 tons of shrimp for the whole Gulf. Like, basically, certainly not, you know, less than 100,000 pounds of shrimp for the average harvester. I mean, you can't even pay the fuel and insurance bill with that right now on these vessels. So, you know, when, when we say people are going to go bankrupt and this industry's done, then we're not exaggerating here in any capacity at all, right? I, I think Kent Smith is exaggerating. We, we also needed a buyback, right? We also needed a buyback. Yeah, I'm not surprised that that's not part of this initial announcement. I'd like to know what Kent Smith, who's the fisheries minister in Nova Scotia, exactly what he's talking about. He says that there's hundreds of jobs that are at risk. Hundreds of jobs of what? On the water? Hundreds, hundreds of jobs in plants? Because even with the amount of redfish coming in, which is not a big fillet fish, I mean, it's a pretty small species, so I have no earthly idea what he's talking about with hundreds of jobs. Also, when they're talking about the fishery that got shuttered in 1995, saying 74% of the redfish quota was held by offshore fleets, that number will be reduced to 58% this year. Does that mean what you said? Does that mean these offshore vessels are all factory freezer trawlers, or is there a different or more expansive definition of offshore? It's not very helpful when they only give us that headline as opposed to break it down so we can really understand where the quote is going. I, I tell you, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. The, the Minister Kent, is it? Uh, you know, there is no jobs that he can point to. The other thing I would say is, you know, uh, you're talking about a plant in Digby, Nova Scotia, and I'll do respect to the people at Digby uh, and the plant workers there. You're going to take fish that's caught up off Corner Brook or even, even off of Port of Basque. 
if you land it in North Sydney and you're going to truck right now as a 30 cent fish, you're going to truck it seven hours away. That seems like a stretch to me for, for that type of product, right? The, the point being is, and again, that, that hits to the point you had, is this a plan to say these 80 boats that are there now, we're totally, they're done. That's it. And we're going to see what in this year or when in one or two years, uh, you know, a 250-foot factory freezer fishing, you know, 15 miles off Port of Bass next winter. And, uh, and uh, that's, you know, that fish is going to be sent, sent overseas markets. I mean, uh, if that's what it is, the government needs to come out and say, yes, this is the plan. And uh, and 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 be clear about it. But it's, it'll be, you know, like I said, uh, it's, it's a beautiful morning here. I've made, you know, you know, I'm from the Labrador Straits. I've represented here for 20 years. I've made, yes, hundreds of trips down this coast. And, you know, I got to say is that's what I'm thinking about this morning. What is the future for the Northern Peninsula in particular? Uh, and the West Coast, you know, that's what it's all about here. We were hoping that with a buyback, we'd still have a fleet. We got some good young harvesters, you know, be less boats that would catch some shrimp and some. We didn't ask for it all. We didn't ask for it all. And I'm shocked. I am shocked that the government, uh, we asked for 50 percent, you know, um, they could have gave us pretty close to that, gave the offshore uh, percentage uh, again. You know, I'm. I don't speak for indigenous, but they only got 10%. I, I'm, I'm shocked at that, too. But I thought there would be more equitable, much more equitable decision everyone else did, and everyone would have lived with that and moved forward. But right now, I just, I'm just at a loss. Other than to say is, you know, um, the future where I'm driving this morning looks very, very bleak, and uh, I don't know what else to say if there's something not else in the cards. We're going to put forward what we can, but, you know, uh, right now there's there's no more answers other than this. So, uh, And very anyway, quickly before uh, I let you go, forward. so you mentioned about the struggles yeah. to get the fleet up and running. So what does that mean for people to want to re-gear to go after redfish versus what they were, the gear they use for shrimp, or is it to try to build some relationship between harvesters and the processing sector with such a small portion of the quota coming here? So what is the struggle mean yeah no so basically the struggle is is that you know there's not enough shrimp and probably not enough redfish in the short term for everyone to make it but in that the the you need all new gear for redfish the, the shrimp net is not applicable to redfish you know uh, a, a, a basic redfish net now is uh, i think someone said told me the other day they priced uh, the, the regular redfish net is over sixty thousand dollars uh, you need uh, arguably more horsepower to be towing for ground fish, and there's other developments that you need. And basically, uh, you know, people are going to have to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars to get into this. I know the minister announced some money for through AFF, but uh, that's the key there. But the other point of that is uh, catching redfish without catching halibut because the, because the amount of halibut is not there. And whether you can bring it in, you still don't want to be bringing it up and having to let it go, right? So we want to protect that halibut resource for everyone, for everyone. There, there are some bycatch, but they're certainly not going to be enough. So, you know, we've done a lot of that work, but there's more that needs to be done. But but right now, I mean, with the amount we got, I, you know, the, so the minister can say you can apply for money to do work, but, uh, but you know... When there's when there's no future before you, what 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 is you know what is the prospect there, right? 
f- fair enough. Uh, and the whole bycatch issue, I just can't wrap my mind around how we can't see what they do in other places so that if I inadvertently, I know some people will go out of their way to purposefully catch something that's not in season, but with bycatch, bring it to the wharf, it's food, right? Bring it to the wharf, we'll pay X percentage of what would be the going rate during the season, and we actually use it, we eat it, as opposed to let it die and throw it back over the gunnel. It just makes zero sense. Uh, Jason, I appreciate the time. Safe travels. Yeah, Patty, thank you very much, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking on this uh, sooner rather than later. I appreciate the time as always. Anytime. Take care. Rip, bye-bye. So, obviously, I'm disappointed by the amount of that 25,000 tons coming to the province. By no means will that cover up what was once the value of those shrimp licenses. And when it costs more to operate and the catch rates are down, that's not a good piece of mathematics. Let's take a break. There's a caller in the queue wants to talk about CPR, and then we're going to talk about the by-election in Conception Bay, East Bell Island, and then we'll speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Otto, you're on the air. Hi, Paddy. Hiya. How you been? I'm doing okay. Otto, is this the Otto I spoke with about a local singer you were hoping to get some of her music? Yes, Leon Chalk, yeah. Yeah, keep your eye on your mail. I'd like to thank Leon and her dad for, uh, Leon, for coming on the show and going to give me a couple of CDs, I think. Yeah, they're on their way. Now, I well, I phoned about, about CPR. Okay. My granddaughter come up, <clears throat> well, she got her license in May, She's after coming up on four accidents now, so far. Now, she's a young girl, 17 years old. The last accident she came up on, the guy wasn't breathing. He had no pulse. Now, you got to get permission to give CPR now, right? So she said to his wife, said, I give him CPR. She said, yes. So she got a kit, right? She took the course within a week, the first day in CPR. Because she was doing home care, right? Mm-hmm. So, anyhow, she got got him reading and got him back. Uh, got, got the heart rate up there. Unreal. Got his pulse rate. He saw his legs for his eyes turn. So, anyhow, she's coming up with me. I lived up in King's Haven there in Clarendon now. When she come in, Mother Drive, Mother Drive, Drive, there by Kia, she went in the hack and they're eating run, and she got the plate number and the colored car. So I guess buddy's in trouble, eh? Very likely. The, let's just talk about the consent issue, because that's interesting. We, we, we've been talking about whether or not you should have to uh, have mandatory CPR and basic first aid if you're working like in a personal care home. Right. But that issue about needing permission to deliver CPR. So the basics of that... As my my understanding, the patient is the only one with legal authority to accept or decline CPR. Now, there are exemptions to it. If I'm a medical professional and I have certified training, I can provide CPR without explicit consent, but it's an interesting one, and there are liabilities. People should understand what they are, because it's one thing to have the training, quite another to get yourself in trouble. And I don't know why anybody, if you're unconscious or require CPR, why anybody would decline CPR would be a mystery to me, but that's an interesting topic that we should take a little further. Yeah, because you can break a real day. You can, no question. Yeah, yeah. Really easy, Penny. Uh, Penny, uh, you go to hockey, Penny, to heard the finals and all that crap. Sure. I, I played hockey. I played back in, well, 58, I think, it started with the elementary school. Then I played in the whole 20 Bay League. We had 12 players. 
Now, I played center on my life, eh? Okay. So this guy, he was a good player, right? He, he, he was a good player, I mean good. So he said to me, he said, you need lots of ice on me. He said, come with me on defense. Well, I'm up with him. We played the whole game. We Only time we got up to ice, when he got a penalty, eh? Because I remember one night, I came home, and mother said, I had a teacher, and she said, well, you from the harbor? I said, no, I played hockey. <laughs> They do game, eh? Good idea. You take the puck from his own end, go up, score, eh? Now he says, your turn. Well, I could do it on a schedule of time, but never again, mate. Eh? Now, yeah. in 77, Paddy, okay. we had a lumberjack contest in Glenmore. The Farsi. Now, I want so many sleeping bags, eh? So this guy. Just hold on a second. The prize was sleeping bag? Uh, yeah, okay. then that, that was one of the prizes, eh? Well, I want two sleeping bags. Okay. And the lumberjack contest. I think Forrestry was up. I don't know. There's only one year left. So this guy, he won the contest. Eh? Now he went to Grand Falls to represent Ongapan Land, and he won. Now, a couple of years after that, every carnival day, we used to have a lumberjack contest. I don't know if you know Larry Gladden, he was a boxer. He walked to St. John's one time. A lumberjack lover used to call him. He was in the forest there in the lumberwoods. So he walked to St. John's on foot uh, Tilly. I think he was in the Constabulary. And he walked out and he lost the foot. <laughs> he used to tell me about that. Now he, he was 75. Now the sign massage is about seven feet long, eh? And me and he used to get on, you got no idea to use right? Because you can't force on her. One all, I all back, he all, hey. And I think we sawed up two 10 inch cuts in 18 seconds. And that's on the two man saw? Yeah, that's a sawing saw. She's a big, long, seven foot saw. Yeah, I can picture it. Now, that guy I told you about went down to Grand Falls, one down there. When two years after that, I beat him. <laughs> I wasn't all slouched on the both side, buddy. Especially two teeth in the wreck, right? Okay, so just a little couple of pieces of information here that I need. So in the world of lumberjack sports, because it's even on television, right? And it's a pretty big yes, deal yes, in some, yes, in, yes. for some people. So are we talking about, like, standing block chop or stock saw, single balk? What was the, what was the competition you were in? Uh, box saw. Box saw. And the Simon saw. Yeah. And the woodchuck. Now, I was... I was uh, head follower over at one time with Larry Richard our day. So two guys finished. You had to take a 10-foot log on your back, and you had a 100-yard dash, hey? Now, two guys were tied for 20 seconds, and they used to beg me. I, I was looking after the lumberjack contest. I said, buddy, if I take that log on my back, I'm going to beat this. I beat him in one second, 19 seconds. <laughs> okay. You know what I my favorite? When it comes to lumberjack. It doesn't sound like it. Uh, my no. favorite when I watch the lumberjack stuff is what they call the springboard chop. So you yes. got the little piece of, uh, like it's a piece of two by four that got an edge on it or a little wedge right end. On. So you right put on. a notch in the in the board, you stick yeah. in the springboard, you hop up and you do that until you get to the top where you got to take out the top off with the, the swing of the axe. So right that's on. a cool sport. Now we used to have a five, four foot wood, a pop wood. Yep. And you had throat probably 20 feet, eh? Now, just measure on time when they cross the line, eh? 
I won that contest. Strong pop with that. Yeah. Well, good on you. Otto, I'm, I'm glad you called this morning. So CPR was a good place to start. And uh, interested to hear about your exploits as a lumberjack. And keep your eye on the mail for those CDs. Well, buddy, I appreciate what you're doing. And, and Patty, if, you, if, if Claremont gets in your hair, then Derelict, did you finish? Bogan finished first play today. So if you come to the game, boy, drop in. I mean, 27, apartment 27. If I'm out in that neck of the woods, I'll look you up. King's Haven, that's up on uh, Richmond, R-E-G-I-M-N-T Street. Yeah, I actually know where it is. What, Walmart? Yeah, I know where it is, actually. Yeah, well, you're welcome to come better coffee or whatever. I appreciate the time, Otto. Thanks a lot. Thanks, buddy. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. Right, bye-bye. Lumberjack Sports, pretty cool stuff. Those men and women who are swinging those axes. and uh, Do you like the hot saw? I do like the hot saw, too. I forgot about that one. All right, so I will dig in a little further on CPR and liabilities. If you are unconscious, apparently that's implied consent. And anybody, like a medical professional, has a, a requirement to perform uh, these life-saving measures. Let's take a break. How are we doing on the phone there this morning, David? When we come back, we're going to talk about the by-election in Conception Bay East, Belle Island. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Just a couple of tidbits of info on CPR and permission and the need for. So there's Good Samaritan Acts. Sometimes called something different in different provinces and territories, but it's right across the country. And here's this from St. John Ambulance, uh, as per a listener who sent this along via text. If you send me a text to my email address, I can't reply, so I appreciate this person sending it. If you accidentally injure the person you're helping, you are protected by law as long as you are not grossly negligent with your actions. This should give you peace of mind if you're hesitant or afraid to act. Rest assured that there's no legal action to be taken against you if you accidentally cause injury or death. So unless you're grossly negligent, you are covered by the Good Samaritans Act to offer that life-saving measure. Let's go to line number five. Bill, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty Daly. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? Oh, not too bad. Thanks. Cool. Um, I know I mentioned to Dave, I do want to talk about the by-election briefly, but before that, I noticed we're talking about hockey on the program this morning. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, Patty, but one of the senior hockey teams, the Conception Bay Blues, did have... Quite a special event on the Sunday past, um, a superheroes game. I'm not sure if you heard about that. I did. Someone uh, sent something along to me, yeah. So um, for folks who, who aren't aware, this is the second annual event. Um, it was in support of uh, Sammy's uh, Climb Choir Foundation, mm-hmm. uh, which is an organization, uh, just an amazing organization that uh, attempts to make sports more accessible to young folks. So all the, on my understanding, is all of the proceeds uh, went to to the organization, um, and I suspect the team will be announcing how you know uh, what the sum of money was. But just based on the attendance alone, uh, alone um, I, th- I, I suspect that the Inception Bay Blues took in quite a lot of money for this organization. So I, I wanted to throw out a um, congratulations to the organizers. One of those folks is Jonathan Kavanaugh who I know put in an awful lot of heart and energy into making that happen again this year. And uh, I must say the community spirit and the positive energy 
uh, that was on display was was really something to behold. Um, and the hockey also wasn't too bad itself. I think it's awesome, and I'll go down the blues for taking it on. And so Sam, or Sammy Porter, died in July of 2022, and so this is all about affordability. So, you know, groups like Sammy's Climb Higher Foundation, the Breakaway Foundation, maybe Kids Sport and some minor hockey associations and senior teams like you talk about, trying to make sure that the sport we all love is accessible to as many people as possible. So lots of good work being done on that front. So congratulations to the Conception Bay Blues. Yeah, and I have to say uh, hats off to the uh, the players as well. You know, they really were part of it, and, and their work ethic on the ice was impressive. I think they really wanted to put a, uh, pull off a win uh, on home ice for that, that special game. Um, moving on to the um, by-election, um, I was born and raised in Conception Bay, East Bell Island, uh, so I do consider that my home district. Uh, I presently don't have a residence there, so I won't be voting, but I wanted to weigh in briefly. Um, I have to say, I, from my perspective, the, the the governing parties that have been elected in that district, there's only two governing parties in Newfoundland and Labrador, have not served the members of that district particularly well, in my opinion. So I think that the voters today uh, should should t- take that uh, under, under consideration. I, I do also want to note that the makeup of the House of Assembly right now is a little close. There's 18 non-governing party members and 21 less the speaker of course uh governing party members so it's kind of close and i think that the members the voters concession bay east bell island should consider trying to maintain um you know that closeness in seat count uh, to, to help hold the government to account uh, there's a particular issue you probably heard about it patty that has come up in conversation uh, that pertains more uh, more so to the bell island uh, constituents on um, you know the ferry system. That's always a big issue, and and I've and I've heard all, all of the candidates are talking about having a shore-based manager. There used to be one in the past, like present there um, at the location of the uh, Belle Island Portugal ferry system, and so folks are are calling for that to be reinstated, which you know I think is a good idea. But I do know the Liberal candidates. My understanding, I wasn't present for the conversation, but they essentially, my understanding, made a, problem, a promise within X number of days. To have the staff person hired for that, that would be great. But I, I, I would say that the Liberal candidate well knows that if just because you're elected as an MHA doesn't mean you get to make those decisions. That would be done by the minister or the premier. So I'm, I'm just I'm wondering, you know, if the premier can back up that that promise that regardless of whether who's elected, that the ferry system will have a shore-based manager. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who can back up what, but, you know, it's pretty standard. And I think that's where some lack of understanding in the world of civics would be is problematic. I think we should all do better on this front. Look, individual politicians who are running to represent one voting district or another, you know, unilaterally, they have very little power. Uh, So you're right. The minister responsible for various portfolios and or the premier, those decisions are made in those rooms and at cabinet meetings, not necessarily by elected. MHAs on a standalone basis mm-hmm. and these types of promises. Mm-hmm. This is every politician of every party does that all the time about what they're going to achieve for their district knowing full well that government moves very slowly for the most part and secondly, no one individual outside the Premier's office really has that kind of authority. Now I know ministers Indeed. have pretty wide yeah. responsibilities and wide authority but not quite as simple as some people make it sound. 
Yeah, agreed. You're totally right. And, uh, you know, uh, more civics at earlier uh, stages in school certainly wouldn't hurt. And uh, so really, and this is a question for the Premier, really. Like, is the Premier committing to a shore-based manager? I'd like to know because I, I believe his candidate is, is, is portraying it in a way where it's, it's a promise that they, can, they will fulfill, you know. So that's a question for the Premier. Um, I, I, did, I did also, I know, it's, as I said, it's been um, Conception Bay East Bellum has always elected, uh, you know, either the PCs or the Liberals, and I think that they should um, give consideration to the NDP. Uh, Kim Churchill is the candidate there. Um, and uh, one of the things that uh, I think is important about the makeup of the House of Assembly is having uh, the current... NDP leader present, which is uh, Jim Din. Uh, he's a uh, he's he's just uh, in in my personal opinion, I think he's one of the one of the better better parliamentarians that we've seen uh, in the province. And and I know that he has a commitment, you know, to social justice, and that rings true. He's very genuine. So I think the NDP in this particular case in this by election, if they were able to elect somebody that would be another NDP vote in the House of Assembly under Jim Din, I think that would be a good thing. Yeah, we'll see what the voters uh, decide today. I wonder what the turnout will be. Historically speaking, by-elections get a woeful voter turnout. Uh, mm-hmm. People know my position on that. Some people think, ah, well, who cares? Well, apathy is a politician's best friend. We should always keep that in mind when we're considering whether or not we're going to take the time and the effort to simply go vote, which is not a big ask of anyone. So we'll see where this lands here this morning. Uh, and I appreciate the time. Thanks for the call this morning, Bill. Yes, Patty, and you make uh, I'll, I'll end with this. Uh, set aside all the partisan uh, uh, politics and the parties. I'll follow your lead here. Uh, I think that the biggest thing folks can do, the best thing they can do in Contestant B, Spell Island, is get out today and vote if they haven't already. Thanks uh, for the time, Patty. No problem. It just popped my mind now. Jim Din has been, quote-unquote, sanctioned by the Speaker because of what he said. You know, what's well, been considered unparliamentary language regarding Paul Pike, Minister Pike, yeah. and his either misspeak or misdirection offered about the number of housing units that have been built. Mr. Din is uh, told he has to apologize before he's going to be recognized by the Speaker again. I don't think that's happened, so we'll see where that one goes, too, because uh, Din was quite willing to stand his ground and say he's not apologizing for calling out the minister on a pretty serious matter. You know, to be told, 750 housing options had been attended to when the real number was 11. There's a long way between those two numbers. I appreciate the call, Bill. Take good care of yourself. Say hello to Dad for me. Will do, Patty. Thanks. Always good chatting. Take my, care. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. And he made mention of the Conception Bay uh, Blues, seniors hockey, senior hockey team. So the Superhero Night, obviously, Bill says, was a big success and bravo. But you can bid on those Spider-Man jerseys. They're actually pretty cool-looking jersey. So that additional monies will also go to the Sammy's Climb Higher Foundation. So... I had it on my Twitter feed, so you can probably find it inside my legs if you're so inclined. There's an opportunity to bid. Bidding is open for about a week, so there's another five, six days available to bid on a game-worn Blues Spider-Man jersey. All right, there you go. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Say good morning to one of the candidates running in the Ward 4 by-election in the city of St. Charles. It's Tom Davis. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Just to throw a little bit of wood on the uh, EV fire, I did a spreadsheet up uh, yesterday just determining with uh, the EV van that I bought last April, which I drove 15,000 kilometers on, it cost me $650 in electricity to run. There was no maintenance. And um, it would have, I figured, cost me around $4,500 in fuel. And obviously, the more I drove it, the more I would have saved. But a lot of people who are... You can find news articles of all kinds of 
bad things happen to EVs, but I just ran into a guy the other day. He said he bought a brand new 2022 Sierra 1500 pickup truck. Transmission went the first six months. The starting motor went the first four months, and he had to wait forever. Like he said, he had a rental for a year. Um, so, so these, you know, there's there's bad stories with with all technology and all vehicles. It's how it goes. A friend of mine who drives EV, I don't have one. Uh, a friend of mine who does, though, he drove just under twenty seven thousand kilometers last year to an operating cost of just shy of a thousand bucks for the year. Yeah, you know, and again, it's not for everybody. I understand, but it's it's, it's also important that people just be as open minded as they can and 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 try not to let emotion dictate where we're going as a city or a province. I want to I want to start with um, a couple of statistics. Um, Newfoundland has the second lowest percentage of businesses per 1,000 individuals in the country, next only to Nova Scotia. However, we have the close to the highest number of employees that work for small businesses. So 93.3% of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who don't work for the public service actually work for a small business. Unfortunately, we're one of the few provinces that has experienced an annual growth rate of employees that is for small businesses that's negative. It's negative 3.5%. So there's 900 less people working for small businesses in Newfoundland and Labrador than they were. And that leads me to what was a revelation for me, although it really shouldn't have been because as I researched it, there is a document that exists that dictates that the that minimum wage in Newfoundland and Labrador is going to go up by the consumer price index every April 1st, and it will not go down. And And I understand, you know, the cry for people to earn more income. I know it's challenging. However, you know, in the world of economics, if you increase the main input costs of a, of something, you're also going to drive up the prices and tying incomes to consumer price index, which which really basically is inflation, will lock in inflation into the economy. And, you know... 60 cents an hour is not going to lock in anything with inflationary pressures across the country. Well, let me just try and educate people a little bit on it. The typical business has a 5% to 20% profit margin. So after they pay all their bills, if they have a million dollars worth of sales, they make between fifty dollars and $200,000, depending on the industry. Now, some might be a little higher, and some are a lot lower, like the grocery business is 2%. If you increase labor by 11.4%, now, you could argue, well, because it's since last year, the minimum wage, including the one that's coming April 1st, will have gone up 11.4%. If you take the average of that and say, Say, say that the income of the average business is 10%. Well, if you increase labor by 11.4%, that's going to drive up around 3% cost. So, so as a business owner, yesterday, I looked at it and thought, well, I need to increase my prices. How much? Well, i got to do the math. In my case, my labor is 35% of my cost of goods sold. And because I'm in the business that that is you know, has a lot of students and a lot of young people and is in, you know, primary serving of customers. Um, you know, I do have employees that make more than minimum wage. Most of my employees make a little bit more than minimum wage or make, you know, 3 or $4 more than minimum wage. Obviously, if I hire a 16-year-old out of high school um, and I've got someone making $17 an hour and that person comes in at 15 60 well, all of a sudden that $17 an hour, I've got to raise that person too. So, so it does trickle up. And... And it does actually have a direct impact on how much I charge for my services. And, it, and in the world of small business, 
where we are facing. And this is not an argument against minimum wage increases, and it's more a complicated thing. It's more of an education process because I actually don't believe the people who make these decisions really care enough about the impact that it will have on on the people who are working for business, because as I just indicated, there's actually less people in Newfoundland Labor now working for small business than they did. Than they did. There's a bunch of reasons why. However, the people who make the decisions, they get paid regardless of whether there's a snowstorm that closes the province for a day or nine days like it did in 2020, or if there's a pandemic, or if they're sick, or if a loved one is sick, or if there's a downturn in the economy, or even if they're accused of committing a crime. There's this hue and cry against the gentleman started trying to start the ride-sharing, and he's accused of a crime. Because he's accused of a crime, he's no longer allowed to run his business. And people are on the radio saying, not only should he not be, no longer be allowed to rise to, to run a business, he should, well, he shouldn't just ever be able to run a business. Well, even if he's found guilty or not guilty, it's kind of irrelevant. There are lots of business owners and people working in the public sector who have criminal records or have been accused of crimes. And, you know, when you really think about the precedent of that, um, that's a scary thing to say. And, and what does that then do to the productivity of that human being? Well, I'm not too concerned about it, to be honest with you. Look, if you are... Innocence of proven guilty, of course, is the cornerstone of criminal justice. That said, if I'm, pl- uh, if I'm applying for a license from a government that has direct involvement with the general public, many of which may indeed be vulnerable, and the charges include sexual assault, and, uh, sexual assault against minors, child pornography and the like, I think we're probably w- better served to allow that to run its course inside the courts before there's any license granted because you're dealing with the, the general public. These are serious allegations. Not all crimes are, cr- are created equal, so I, don't, I have no problem with suspending the license until we see what happens in the courts. Why I don't know why anybody would. Well, because at the end of the day, whether that person turns out to be a criminal or not, does that mean then, as a person sitting in an office, he should not, he or she should not be able to be a productive member of society? Because obviously, that person can't be employed by a lot of places in this country. And and again, nobody is more of an advocate. Well, there's more bigger advocates, but I'm a strong advocate for the prevention of child abuse. But I also scares me the label if just someone coming out and accusing of you of something then destroys your business your job your position in society and if it if it turns out to be a false allegation which although is a small very small number of cases that that occurs it, it can be reality i don't want to get too bogged down yeah, but it, but he doesn't have a business this is a license to create a business so nobody had their business derailed because there wasn't anything generating one nickel in revenue look if i'm uh, convicted of any of those types of charges forget owning and operating a business dealing with the general public i can't coach minor soccer i mean there's all kinds of ramifications that come with if and when he's uh, found guilty uh Potentially or not, I don't know. But until that comes and goes, I'm not too worried about licenses for ride sharing, to be honest with you. Because just like I said, if I'm convicted of those types of crimes, there's all kinds of things I can't do in this country, right? I can't coach a minor hockey team. I can't volunteer at most not for profits or charities in the entire country if I have that type of record. So let's see what the courts decide. If he's found not guilty, he can proceed with the application. We'll see where the government decides to go. Well, hopefully, he does. Anyway, like I was saying, I got we got derailed, but. Um, an ID rail, that's my fault. So if, if someone's accused, if a, the people who are making the rules that that small business owners and the individuals in this country have to follow, in this province have to follow, they can be accused of committing a crime. They can even, they can even be found guilty of committing a crime, and as long as it wasn't something that somehow, ne- like, i.e. drinking and driving, which I would argue is a super, super um, serious 
offence, as we are knowing by the two young ladies who just lost their life and the ramp, the, just the rampant amount of accidents that seem to have drinking and driving. So, you know, you don't automatically lose your job if you work in many parts of this, unless, you, unless you're required to drive, obviously. And then you, and I imagine that if you worked in the public sector, you would be accommodated. But my point of all this is not so much to get bogged down in that, is that people making the rules don't seem to be impacted by reality. As long as they punch their time, they're going to have a pension at the end, and the pension will be guaranteed. However, in Newfoundland and Labrador, the people who, are out, who don't have any of those guarantees are forced to follow the whims. And, you know, and it, I mean, these same individuals are being pummeled by inflation. They've got this SIBA repayment. 58% of small businesses in Canada have $105,000 or more of pandemic debt. EI has just gone up. The cost of insurance has gone up. Labor, as we just discussed, has gone up. And all I'm saying is that that people who make these rules, it shouldn't just have been something that got dropped in a press release. That in three months' time, by the way, minimum wage is going up 60 cents. Now, it was it was there, but there was, there was no press release. In the past, they would say that they said that April 1st it was going up to this amount. April, there was no press release said, oh, by the way, expect this. And not only that, that wage, minimum wage increase is tied to the Canadian price index, which was 4% last year. However, Newfoundland's was 3.4%. So now, now we're actually baking in a higher rate of inflation into those wages than actually exists in the province. And, and that is something that is going to impact everybody who buys things from small businesses because small businesses have to increase their wages to reflect it. I will tell you one thing. I Not wages. Well, yes, wages, of course, but also prices. I have to increase my prices. It's just the, the squeeze is, is very small, and, and so will every smart small business who wants to exist in a year or two years' time because as the largest, the number one expense for me in my business is labor, by far. There's nothing even close to sure, it. Sure, but low-income earners, by and large, spend their money where they live, as opposed to many others who see an increase in their pay, and some of that money might be spent with Carlson Wagenly to go to a, a trip to Portugal or something. I remember back to when all the doomsday predictions in the province of Ontario, when they fast-tracked to $15 uh, per hour, the one estimate I remember reading was, immediately within 60 days, we'll see 60,000 jobs lost. The outcome, none of that, none of that even close. In fact, the job market was stable and grew the following year. So it's kind of, you know, and sometimes people lose sight of what the economy really is. The economy is not the government, right? The, the government is actually an impediment to the economy by and large. We're the economy, how much money I have and where I can spend it, and it's well documented. Low and middle income earners, they spend their money where they live. You know, very little of that makes its way outside provincial boundaries for obvious reasons. So we'll see what the outcome is here. Uh, it also says you want to talk uh, the educational court, and if you do, we have very, very little bit of time to do so. I'm going to leave it till next week, but I want to want to want to mention the CFIB just released a report titled "Flushing Out the Nonsense: An Analysis of Municipal Renovation Permitting Across Canada," and they basically looked at a $20,000 bathroom reno where you took a powder room and turned it to a full bathroom. The city of St. John's had the third most expensive permitting cost in the country, twice as expensive as Moncton and Halifax, and almost twice as expensive as Toronto, with six documents required in St. John's. Obviously, we need more living spaces, en-suites, basement renovations, and all those are really excellent because they don't require new builds, they don't require more roads, more infrastructure, more, more public transportation. 
and it also helps homeowners who need a little bit of additional money, whether it's the shared spaces that was talked about a couple of weeks ago or people putting in basement apartments or en suites. I want to call on uh, the city, and I want to make it a part of my platform to streamline, which I know they're actually making some good moves down there. I've heard, for it seems like, for the larger projects, but I want to call on them to do the exact same thing for the smaller projects, to streamline, to reduce the red tape so that people don't have to spend money they don't have and don't require professionals, architects and engineers, when it's not necessary. Do, do a minor renovation like, a, like changing a bathroom. You shouldn't need an architect or an engineer. And in the city of St. John's, they need professionals to sign off on it. And we, first off, let's do away with any duplication that's in place, of which there is plenty. The building department and the uh, uh, the development department, they kind of overlap each other with a bunch of duplication and then increases wait time and or carry costs. If we're going to be building stuff, we need to do away with some of that stuff, including maybe an uh, for, uh, pardon me, a pre-approval for a bunch of well-known contractors, well-understood contractors and developers. The hoops that people are jumping through with the increased cost, you add in 200, fo- 200 bucks a square foot to build, then the carry cost for when you identify a piece of property and or a building to either renovate or knock it down or to build it fresh it just takes too long so consequently people aren't going to be interested in building the kind of units that are actually what we need here in the country versus what's going to make more profit because if I'm a developer I'm in it to make profit I'm not in it to you know for my health so to speak and or to help with the housing crunch I'm in it to make money because they're taking a flying risk here uh, Tom I got to get to the break but appreciate the time good luck take care everyone thank you bye-bye all right break time let me come back Mark was there to talk about the by-election as well don't go away Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Margaret. You're on the air. Uh, Hello, Patty. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. Getting, you know, getting through the day since Brandon's death, um, you know, but it's not about that today. I'm calling in to uh, speak for Fred Hutton, not speak for him, to support him, I guess. That's what I wanted to, uh, to call in and let you know that. And uh, basically, I, uh, I'll tell you my story and then I will go from there. Okay. Um, I, I, uh, this is the last day of the election. Uh, I wanted to call. I said I had to call and support him for what he did for me, and my Brandon would want me to do that too. Uh, I I'll just I I knew Fred from Beachy Cove. My children went to school in St. Phillips. Uh, I no longer live there. I lived on Obarco Road for 20 years. So when I heard about Fred running for the election, the first thing I thought, oh my, if I was down there, I'd be the first one in line. Anyway, Fred, um, I like I said, I only know him in passing at the school being there in the office, doing different things in the school. Fred was there. Hi, Fred. You know, everyone knew Fred because obviously he was the uh, NTV news anchor plus in the community. Uh, I just wanted to call him because Fred was an exceptional person to help me when Brandon was missing. Brandon was missing July of 2022. You know that because I called in. And I... I called one day because I uh, called the uh, premier's office. I had been dealing with the RCMP, and we had an issue that they had been waiting to uh, get a response from, and it was to do with the justice system. So basically, uh, it was a waiting game. And as a mother, I was just waiting, and I thought, I can't wait. What can I do? As a mother, you're going to do whatever you have to do because you want him to come home. 
And so I reached out to the office of uh, Premier Fury, and I left a message. And um, um, basically, within a day, I had a call. So I pick up the phone, and he said, Hi, Margaret, this is Fred Houghton. And at the time, I didn't know that Fred Houghton had been working for Premier Fury in the position that he was. I'm thinking, oh, that's strange. Fred Houghton is calling me, you know. I don't know him well like that. I just know him to say hi in the hall. Anyway, uh, he said, Margaret, this is Fred Houghton. He said, I'm uh, with Premier Fury now. We got your message. And he said, I just wanted to call. He said, I'm so sorry to hear about Brandon, you know, and and sending you good wishes that he will return safely. And uh, he said, we're just going down. Myself and Premier Fury, and we're heading through the airport. He's a true customs. He said, we're going to a big convention. And at the time, it was on the media. And I remember thinking, yes, Fred, it's, you know, it's a horrific time. And, uh, and anyway, he got my message. He said, yes, Margaret, yourself for myself. And uh, Premier Fury said, you know, our thoughts are with you. And, you know, anything that we can do. I said, well, I put it in detail. I said, but if uh, you contacted the RCMP, I'm sure they will give you more. He said, yes, Margaret, whatever we can do, he said, from Premier Fury's office. Because I was, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't something that I could say. This, this, and this, the RCMP would be able to uh, detail further. And uh, I had a pretty good idea what they were looking for, but obviously I can't get into that. So anyway, he said, yes, I will, uh, we, will, we will take care of that. When we get back, I'll give you a call back. And um, it was something that would be needed to, I thought, okay, go a little bit further. Maybe they can rush it along. So anyway, he calls me, and um, basically himself and Premier Fury said, yes, whatever we can do, Margaret. In that regard, we will help. And um, then I got a call within a day or two again, and then someone else was addressing it with the RCMP to the justice minister or whatever, if need be. And uh, anyway, that is my story about Fred. Fred was not running for politics at the time. Fred reached out to a person who he just saw in the hall. I knew, you know what I'm saying? He did that because he is a good an honest man. He's an honorable man. I've seen him at the school with his children. He is an excellent father. He's just a remarkable man. He is what you see. And uh, I thought that story had to be mentioned because during the most horrific time of my life and my family, Fred Hunt did that for me alongside with the Premier Fury. And uh, I, I wanted to reach out and tell that story because I heard a few things when I was, you know, at home and, and uh, I'm not returned back to work. And I remember sitting on the sofa and watching something on the news one night and I, and I didn't like the tone they were speaking of about Fred Hunton. I'm not Fred Hunton, it's about Premier Fury. And I didn't like it because I know when I was in the most horrific time of my life and, I, and you know, I lost my son. I do. My son did not come back. So... Basically, I did not like that. And they made Premier Fury seem as if he was very uncaring. And I thought, no, he, he, is, he is not an uncaring man. And, I, and I'm here calling for Fred Hunt, but I'm going to tell you very quickly. Um, I guess it was seven years ago now, maybe. My mother had fallen and she fractured her shoulder. I had an appointment with Dr. Fury, never met the man in my life, with my mother who was onset dementia, early onset. So anyway, we were going to the health science for her to go into an appointment with Dr. Fury, first time meeting him. She's going, she's anxious. I'm not getting surgery, and she's, you know, as, as sometimes they can be, and very, you know, anxious. And I thought, no, everything's going to be fine. It's just to see how you're doing, and, you know, if, if uh, you know, surgery is required. I didn't bring that up, but this is what's on her mind. So we went in, and she sits down, and she's anxious. 
and Premier Fury comes in, Dr. Fury at the time, and he comes in and, and uh, I mistakenly said to him, um, Dr. Fury, she has onset dementia. You know, she's a bit anxious is what I was trying to get through to him. She was taking off her coat and she heard me. And she boxed around really quick and she got upset. I don't have dementia. And she got very upset. And I'm thinking, oh, no. I'm after, you know, upsetting her. And I, and I just wanted him to know what he was dealing with. And, and I thought, even though she's good majority of the time, at that time, she, and she's still good. But my point to the story about Premier Fury is he, he, he heard, heard her and how she reacted. And she was upset then. Do you know, within minutes, he said, now, Teresa sat with her, start talking to her. Do you know within three minutes, I, I give him a minute, minute to three, I sat back in awe and watched how he took care of mom, how he put her at ease, how he calmed her down within minutes. I was shocked. I was like, oh my God. He, he's like, like you would say the horse whisperer. I was like, I was amazed. I said, what bedside manner is he? What? I was just amazed because he took her from someone who was all of it. Now she's upset. And you could tell by her tone with me that like, you shouldn't have said that to the doctor. And uh, he calmed her down within, I give him one to three minutes. And he heard her, had her as calm as if it was me going in. No worry, not too concerned. And he said, no, Teresa, everything is fine, you know, not going to require surgery. And you're just going to have to go have physio. Any other issues? Well, obviously, they'll send you back. I just wanted to say, as, an, as a doctor and as an individual, he did with my mother that day something that anyone in the province would say, yeah, that's an impressive man. That's an impressive person. So my point is I didn't like the fact when they had been degrading his character as how it seemed to me as being an uncaring person. He took care of my mother that day and gave her comfort, and she left that office, and he took care of obviously her needs that needed to be done medically. And she left that office beaming from ear to ear. Oh, what a wonderful doctor. My God, I'll go back to him again. So all I'm trying to say is I did not like that when it was put that Premier Fury okay. was less than. But I'm here today just to say that Fred Hunton is an amazing person. What he did for me and my family alongside Premier Fury and the RCMP was, you know, fine after they, they did it, managed to figure it out. Uh, but they were aided. And that, and I, and like I said, I can't get into that. But Fred okay. Hutton was the person who took the authority. He took the bulls by the horn. He he, see a, he saw a problem. He knew what needed to be done. They addressed it. He wasn't running for politics. He is now. If we want someone that we can look at as a leader, from NTV News to CBC with Chrissy Holmes to the person who was there during Snowmageddon, we had no contact other than the lifeline on the radio with him and your colleagues. He was our lifeline. We all understood, Margaret. I'm sure he appreciates yeah. your support. Thank you for the call. Okay, thank you. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Let's take that break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Rhonda, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call, and I hope you and the crew are all well. We're doing fine, thanks. Hope you, hopefully you are as well. What's on your mind, Rhonda? Well, I'm kind of upset. Um, uh, everybody, obviously, is aware of the cost of things increasing and the size of the items are shrinking. Even food don't taste the same. Had a can of SpaghettiOs, the flavor is just blah. But my issue is ostomy quali- product quality. Uh, so I've had an ostomy since 2007. 
and I've had the same product since 2007. And just to put it in, I guess, layman's terms, uh, you put a wafer on, which is uh, over your, your stoma, and it's like a big bandage, and it, it, I used to have them on from, oh my goodness, at least seven days, even up to two weeks. And obviously, uh, I, we talked before, I was a lady that had used it for it and whatnot. So, uh, keeping an ostomy product on is very important. Uh, the cost of five of these wafers is $85, uh, give or take. But anyway, you put these wafers on, and uh, I, you know, they used to last a grand time. Now, the cost of the bag to go inside of that, that's another cost. Right. So, just so I understand what we're talking about, Rhonda, is the wafer, that's the, the skin barrier piece? Yes, that's the flange to the skin barrier piece. Oh, okay. Exactly. And um, I never had to use products to keep it on. It would stay on, and, you know, I could swim, I could get a shower, I could do anything that a normal person can. I'm so proud of my ostomy, it saved my life. However, since December 23rd, the same product, I've gone, I'm now on my 10th wafer. Uh, also going through menopause, so women tend to sweat a bit more. I can't get a bath without the edges being compromised. If uh, It's like I get three to four days out of it, and it's compromised, and I have to change again. Like, these guys are $15 each. I have no insurance, so, you know, the sensors for my diabetes are 140 every 10 days. Then you got the medications and any additional medications. It's, it's staggering. And I'm wondering, are there other people out there that's experiencing this? Now, I guess other people mightn't see the significance in it because a lot more people, I assume, have insurance. And... I just really, like, there's nothing that changed with me. My body type is the same. The skin is the same. And I can't even sleep through the night now because if anything shifts or change or if I get a little bit more air in my bag, it pop. that's another way it'll come off. I can't eat as much as I used to because the compromise is the, the way for sticking to my skin. Like, the dignity that you suffer from this stuff, these companies are making $4 billion a year off of other people's, people's pain and suffering, and there's nobody to help the uninsured with this. So along with that, like, I could barely manage when I could get a decent time frame out of one wafer. But now everything is compounding so much I don't know where to go to. I could certainly write the company and this and that and the other thing, but I'm a little pebble in a great big sea of pebbles, and I'm hoping there's other people out there that, that you know, ostomies are not things people like to discuss. You know, they're the, you know, a lot of people are embarrassed about them. But I don't hear anybody talking about them, and I'm sure as heck I'm not the only one. Of course not. Have you tried to go to any of the support groups or the, the Newfoundland chapter or Newfoundland Labrador chapter of Ostomy uh, Canada, which I know does yeah, exist? I, I'm on all of those sites and whatnot, and there's only so much people can do with the tools they have, and I am not eligible for anything. I don't. I pay. 
85 $86. Well, now I paid, I paid that a couple of weeks or a week ago, and it's like I got to go now tomorrow and get another, then another $85 on disability. It's just, it's, it's, it's so depressing, and you, your life is so affected. I, I, you know, you can't be active. You can't get, you can't sleep a decent night. You can't move properly. And, you know, even with our government, I had a short stay in hospital not that long ago. My ostomy came up, and I had, they didn't even have wafers there at the hospital. My partner had to buy some in CBS and bring it out to me. Like, are these companies saying, oh, let's just, you know, maybe we can get away with not as much of a certain ingredient. And if we don't hear anything and they're only replacing them a couple of days or two shorter, well, you know, that's extra however much money in our pocket because that's really what it feels like with the global effect on every product. But now when it comes to health care, like, I cannot go without this. And the Ostomy company, they might write me back and oh we'll send you a complimentary pack of five what's that going to do it's a drop in the bucket what's the my life Rhonda are you on disability I am on long term disability yes I've been since 2007 so in inside that world there aren't support programs for health care supplies no and I was on CBC and the most support I got one of the largest supports I got was a friend in New Brunswick, her and her, her husband both had ostomies, and she sent me a big box of ostomy supplies they no longer needed, and that kept me going for so long. God love her heart. And I know that Eastern Health throws out or disposes of unused products <clears throat> related to ostomy and wound care. There has to be some kind of answer within this world that we, like, I can see not using, not taking insulin or, or doing, you know, reusing insulin or re-prescribing, I'm sorry. But with ostomy products, there has to be a way to take that waste. And oh, just one like, second, Rhonda. I, I understand your concern on the points. So have you gone to NL Health Services? There's a program called Special Assistance Program that deals specifically with medical equipment and medical supplies. Have you tried them? Uh, when I was in hospital, a form was filled out for that. I have not heard anything about that yet. You should follow up, because who knows how many different applications or pieces of paperwork get lost in the shuffle, because my understanding is that that program is for exactly this purpose. So if you're on long-term disability, I would imagine you probably qualify for some support. So if you use a computer, if you simply yeah. go to Government of Newfoundland, uh, Government of NL, Special Assistance Program, they'll bring you right to the link and you should be able to do some follow-up there. There'll be contact information. So I, if I was you, I would do exactly that when you hang up speaking with me. Oh my goodness, Patty. A special Assistance Program, I definitely yeah. will. Absolutely. Yeah, but do again, that. I just hope that this is a topic that other people can, you know, talk about because no matter if you, no matter what you spend on things, when when the product is not good and you know your physical quality of life is affected this should be addressed on a higher level but i certainly appreciate your information god love your heart yeah do exactly that and Rhonda, get back to me like send me an email or something let me know uh if you had any luck with this but that program is specifically for people like you and the type of supplies you need 
I will certainly do that, Patty. God love your heart. Thank you so much, and I hope you and yours are well. Same to you, Rhonda. Let me know how it goes. I will okay. certainly. Blessing to you. Appreciate your time. Take care. Good luck. You're welcome. Thank you. And you too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. So with hopefully she gets some satisfaction there. Um, with just about a minute before the news, hopefully Ashley and Mark and Sean can all stay with us. Uh, Dave's also speaking with someone else uh, to set him up for calls. And hopefully he can stay through the news because if not, we'll only have a very short conversation. That's not good enough. Ashley wants to talk about assisted suicide. We brought it up off the top of the program that the federal government is now pausing once again about expansion of medical assistance in dying. And this expansion was to include people whose sole concern, sole issue, was mental illness. So there's a committee struck with some 15 MPs and senators to look at exactly this, and their recommendation was to hold on. It's the second such pause in this particular program. So a lady apparently had called and said that, you know, her concern is her mental illness, of which she has a terrible quality of life, and then maybe, just maybe, that medical assistance in dying is exactly what she needs. I can't speak to individuals and what they think is the best for them. That's up to you and your doctor and the process that is involved in medical assistance in dying. The concern that I brought forward is that there's... uh, testimony in front of that committee that was brought forward by psychiatrists who said something that I think is really quite declarative on this issue. They went on to say that it would be difficult, if not impossible, for medical professionals to decide whether mental illness is beyond treatment. Is that a catch-all for 100% of people with a mental illness that is really quite serious and severe? I don't know, but those were psychiatrists offering exactly that. So we'll see what Ashley wants to say about assisted suicide right after this. Now we're talking about the by-election, 10 City, and anything you want to talk about don't go away stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your vocm join linda swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you news talk on your vocm and welcome back to the show i should have mentioned this i suppose off the top of the show this morning with a programming update so we were scheduled last week to have time with Minister Osborne and the man at the helm of Newfoundland Labrador Health Services, David Diamond. That was pushed to Monday, was pushed to Tuesday, and now it's pushed to tomorrow. So there's apparently some sort of conflict uh, regarding uh, Mr. Diamond's availability. But apparently, as was, I think, just confirmed by the Department of Health representative, is that tomorrow at 10 a.m. will be Minister Osborne and David Diamond. And, of course, I've tried, I'll try to incorporate as much as I can of your suggested questions. We'll cover as much ground as we possibly can with the time that we're given tomorrow. So there's your programming update. Let's keep going. Line number two. Ashley, you're on the air. Hi. I'm pretty disappointed of what I heard last night on the Global National. It's a slap in the face for people such as myself who suffer mentally and emotionally. Pretty big slap in the face. We were disappointed last year and then hopeful for this year. So give us the specifics of what you're disappointed about. I'm disappointed that I'm going to have to keep... I hate to say it, but my hopes for the suffering games were dashed. It's what had upset me the most. So you're talking about the government's decision to pause expanding medical assistance in dying to folks dealing with mental illness. 
Yes, yeah, so I have PTSD and uh, I can't take most ep- medications such as antidepressants and antipsychotics because I'm epileptic. So that limits my choices. Um, I have a sorry, I um, I have a dog. Sorry, just about that. I have a service dog I'm trying to train because of this. But in the meantime, I was hopeful that I would be able to finally exit out of this, not have to suffer anymore because I've been suffering my entire life. I'm in my 30s now and I'm at the end of this. Bullied my entire life and expected to take it. I read something online that sums it up perfectly as as to why it's the one of the reasons suicide would be opposed. Society needs people to belittle, berate, demonize, and dehumanize without fear of consequences. I have had all of those things happen to me, even in the presence of the RNC, and nothing was ever done. I've had a man, a 59-year-old, get away with harassing me. That's another story. But if, yes, I know two individuals who also had the same type of harassment, and because those two individuals were normal, they were listened to, and even things were done. The RNC witnessed this man harass me. Even sent he sent me a text message from the RNC. Oh, it's fine. It's done to me. Even though I asked the man to leave me alone five times, I've been. It's. It seems like you just part of the reason is. Uh, an underlying reason this would be denied for, or postponed is because society needs people to crap on without any repercussions. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak to that because there's always going to be segments of society that are no. in the crosshairs of people who are just endlessly miserable. And yes. that's what gets them going in the morning and they just behave like that all day long, every day, which it yes. must be exhausting. So I'm sorry to hear of your troubles. Inside this conversation... You know, when psychiatrists are offering their thoughts and their testimony to the committee that was struck to look at whether or not the system is prepared for this expansion, and they go on to say something that I think is pretty important, and I'll get your reaction. They say, these are psychiatrists, that it would be difficult, if not impossible, for medical professionals to decide whether a mental illness is beyond treatment. So you might want it, but there's also the onus is on the doctors to approve it. So if they say they're going to be unable, quite likely, to approve these types of medical assistance in dying, we may find ourselves at a stalemate anyway. In addition to that, for folks who are severely mentally ill, and we know that's, that's, that's out there in, in society, their ability to make an independent, informed decision about whether or not this is something that they should or could or want to do. So there's a couple of layers there where the psychiatrists are really quite worried about that. So I'll get you to speak to the first part about whether or not a mental illness can be uh, considered beyond treatment. Well, if you can't, I guess, for example, I'm unable to get treatment for medications. Antidepressants and antipsychotics are unavailable to me because I'm epileptic. That means that uh, the medications that would help you feel better are no, not available to me. I understand. Furthermore, I went to the, actually, here's an interesting piece of tidbit. On Friday, I was actually at the Waterford Hospital hoping to get help in the PAU. And that's a place I would never go to again because of something I witnessed that was unclean, very unclean in the bathrooms. Um, 
Anyway, I was denied help. I had also learned that if you're neurodivergent, no, we don't service people who are that. You just keep going alone. Go reach outside of the province. I have had to go contact outside of Newfoundland to get help. I have found. Yeah. So just let me add to that. So from where I'm coming from, and of course, it's not a with lived experience. So I'm just hoping that you can help fill in some of the blanks for me. And I would imagine sure. for others listening. So my thoughts were, you know, as opposed to being told, for you to be told that you can't get something, you can't get a certain type of treatment, you might have to go far afield or out of province for it. Would it not be in the big scheme of things, not for you specifically, possibly, but maybe just improving the system? You know, for folks who are unable to take the pharmaceuticals based on the fact you're epileptic, you know, to offer the type of hope and treatment and support that you currently cannot avail of, would we not be better served as a country to improve the system before we talk about expanding the opportunity to be assisted medically in dying? What do you think? I'm not sure exactly. I'm a a little overwhelmed and confused now between speaking with you and dealing with my dog at the same time. I live alone. Okay. Um, It's, uh, but it's very stressful. The only thing I can speak to is if the person has done everything they can, why would you have them suffer? I mean, I, I apologize for saying this. When my dog is sick and old and sick, she's only 10 months old right now, uh, I will have her euthanized. But uh, this will sound really harsh to say. I hope that those who are against suicide don't euthanize their pets because they're contradicting themselves big time. It's a contradiction. You're, because if people, I've seen these people say online, it's God's will, etc. Well, then isn't it God's will for all, all creatures to die naturally? If that's what they're saying, I'm not for religion or anything. It's just what I've been reading in comments last night on Facebook. Yeah, I, I don't know because you're the person who's living it and I wouldn't be. No. I, of course, I'm not going to get involved in saying, telling you okay. what you could or should do because it's not my place, number one. No. I can only talk about these types of issues in the broader sense and in the world of improving the system because, I mean, we've heard the examples where it just doesn't seem like this is why this program was created. Like for veterans to go in and be told, well, have you considered medical assistance in dying? There were stories from Manitoba, these two women in uh, specifically that all they needed was more additional care in the home to be able to live a manageable life and they couldn't get it and consequently they chose medical assistance in dying so my thoughts would be improving access improving the system may indeed see the numbers of people who have their mind has gone all the way to suicide maybe that would be less frequent Maybe those numbers could be reduced if the system was better. And I'm not going to get you to reply to that because you have your own circumstances and they're yours and whatever you think is best for you is exactly what is best for you. But I just wonder whether or not we've taken what so-called easy way out versus the hard work of improving things, improving the system, improving access to care. I don't know. I mean, I don't either. And it also comes down to how you treat people. I mean, I am constantly mistreated. I've had experienced horrific experience after horrific experience after horrific experience. And it came last year after getting off the phone with the mental health crisis line, the RNC came to my door. They never cared why I felt the way I felt. And when I pointed out this and uh, stayed, stated that 
They only want to be around to suffer because if I'm gone, then those that have been being nasty to me will have to find somebody else to be nasty to. And the person they find might be someone who's worth something. And because that person's important status has an important status in society, they'd be charged. Whereas if it's me, it's, it's not against law. Instead of saying or doing anything to prove me wrong, I was basically proved right. The RNC looked at me and snarled, goodbye, Ashley, and left. That's not exactly uh, encouraging, now is it? No, and I'm sorry to hear that that was your experience uh, on that front. Uh, Ashley, would you like to say, uh, I just have another couple of seconds for you to finish your thoughts. Go ahead. Sorry, uh, there's an overlap too. I'm on the cell phone. Apologies for that. It's okay. Um, it seems that we need people around the sufferer in order for us to benefit. And I'm not trying to complain about that. It just feels like it's no different than yourself or a taxi driver. It's a service, essentially. And I mean, because if you're doing something to me that if you did it to Susie, it would be against the law. But you do it to me, it's not against the law. That's completely contradictory. And, and nothing should be that way. And for people out there who need to see others feel bad so they can feel good, that's its own form of mental illness. And it it, it's far too common. Uh, Ashley, they are flagging me off to the break, but I hope you're well, you. and I appreciate your time. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, tricky one, boy. Let's see here. Let's take a break. Pre uh, appreciate the patience of those in the queue. You're up after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's roll. Line number three, Mark, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going today? Doing okay. How about you? Not too bad. Um, I'm just calling in because I just cannot believe that there are still people at Tent City. We're almost into February. The task force started in, what, November 30th, I believe? Like, how are there still people there? So I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I hear callers talk about the premier and, and compassion, but I'm not hearing i'm not seeing that like why are there not why has why has this not been resolved what um, does the, here's my confusion on that front mark i know where you're coming from but what is the short-term resolution before the comfort inn is ready to go which will be in march or there's some minimum oversight for the uh, emergency shelters and or more units are open up in newfoundland labrador housing none of which can happen immediately so what are we suggesting can and should be done i don't have the answer that's why i'm asking well, I mean, we, we know people are getting rentals. Like, there are people that are getting rentals. Yep. We're hearing about it, in, not the folks at Tent City. Um, people that were at Tent City, um, are, some of them are getting rentals. Um, we know that the Comfort Inn, I mean, all I've heard about the Comfort Inn it alludes to the fact that that's not going to be a solution for anybody at Tent City, that these are going to be units dedicated to, uh, you know, lower acuity um, lower acuity, fo uh, acuity folks that have housing issues. So who has, I don't think that who that's said even that? a solution. Who, who said that, Mark? I'm just curious because well, for the purpose of follow-up. Well, we've heard we've heard Judy Sparks Canoe. We've heard uh, Paul Pike and uh, and uh, I believe it was Paul Pike or John Abbott. I think it was John Abbott actually that said it on on. Uh, on your show, actually. I, I don't know if you were there that day, Patty. I but, interviewed uh, Mr. Minister Abbott about it, and in fact, what he said to me is, there has been any decision made about eligibility criteria and or the vetting process, so I'm a little bit surprised that anybody has told anybody about who can or will not be able to avail of the services and or a room at, that, at the transition house. That, that's where I'm going with that one, because I don't know yeah. if anybody even knows what the we vetting process looks like. 
We, well, that, and, and that was alluded to with uh, Doug from and homelessness. So, I mean, what is the process? Is this a solution? You know, we heard Paul Pike say, you know, maybe March, but like, you know, there was no commitment to this happening even in March. So um, I'm getting worried. Like this is, they're out of food. They're out of water. They're out of propane. Um, there's nobody down there as far as I've been told. Like there is no one from government or in homelessness going down there. This is what I've been told. I don't know if, you know, this is secondhand information, but people need to, we need folks to be down there dealing with the scenarios that are ongoing with these folks, whether they, you know, whatever they want. Uh, they need to be, this, these issues need to be resolved. We can't just like, you know, this issue is only going to get worse, Patty, over time. You know, when the when the weather changes, we're going to see people all over coming out of shelters that they're not happy in and heading into tents. So we need to have some practice before that happens, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm just... I think there's still so many questions about the Comfort Inn that I don't know whether or not it's good, bad, or indifferent, to be honest with you. So... I do think we might be putting the cart out in front or at least parallel to the horse when we talk about who can and cannot be supported at the Comfort Inn because I don't think anybody knows, which is one of the major issues that are still left unanswered here, for me anyway. No one's been able to tell me because I've been trying to figure that out since the day it was uh, announced. Well, let's hear from Doug from Men Homelessness. Who's going to be in there? Last I heard, there was, you know, we're discussing... Uh, Metro bus, we, we need to have a Metro bus stop, stop added or, you know, uh, there was some discussion going on with Metro bus. Like, this is, what, a month ago? Like, it's getting ridiculous. So I, I just don't, you know, just seeing very, you know, I've been very involved and I've seen very closely how, how this has all been managed and, and, it, and I'm not impressed. So I, I'd like to see some action. And I just cannot believe that there's like six people still at 10 City. It, it blows my mind. Um, so, you know, do they care? I, I, it doesn't. I'm, I'm concerned that our government does not care about these folks, because otherwise they'd be down there trying to figure out exactly what these folks need, rather than going down and saying, "Would you like this shelter? Would you like this shelter?" They would go down and they'd solve the problem. That's what needs to be done. Anyways, uh, thanks for <laughs> for letting me rant there, Patty. Um, uh, we're, as you know, we've uh, we've been proposing tiny shelters, which are you know which are being used elsewhere in the rest of Canada, essentially, pretty much every province, um, and uh, through our our uh, our project called Bringing Down the House, and we've we have had a, a fundraiser, GoFundMe fundraiser, going for. Uh, I guess about a month, maybe maybe a little bit longer, Patty. Um, we're going to add to that. We're going to show a documentary on February 8th at 6.30 at Bannerman Brewery. And that's a documentary about uh, uh, Khalil Sievright, who in uh, Toronto just started building small shelters for people in city parks in Toronto. And... Um, then you know it's a, it's it's quite a story actually it's a, it's a, it's about an hour and 15 minutes the documentary um tickets are available now they can uh, folks can go to my uh twitter and get the eventbrite um uh link and it's a pay what you can event um we're suggesting $20 per ticket just to keep this fundraiser going and the fundraiser is aimed at bringing in one of these shelters from Ontario which are 
about uh, two-thirds the price of the ones being used in Nova Scotia um, and are bigger and sturdier and warmer. Um, so we think they're a, you know, a, winning, a winning design, and we think that we can get to the point of even perhaps building them here. Um, but we've got to bring one down because we've got to deal with municipalities and, or, and organizations and communities that may want to bring these in. Um, so I'm urging people to have a look at that, uh, get a ticket, uh, come on down to Bannerman, and it should be should be quite good. Yeah, and I, I saw that float by when I saw your feed, uh, whenever it was this morning, possibly. So we'll see where all that goes. And now you've got me uh, hyper-focused on the vetting process because m- maybe I missed it, but maybe uh, Mr. Pawson, if he's listening or he can make time for us this morning, if there's been any advancement inside that group, because you, you mentioned Judy Sparks Canoe, uh, and of course she's the business person who owns the hotel, who will have, I don't imagine, any or very little input on how we vet because we're talking about physical health, mental health, addiction services, which is very much a wraparound service that is not in the hands of business owners but in the hands of Newfoundland Labrador Health Services and maybe some other departments as well whether it be Minister Pike or Abbott or whoever else involved but let's hope the vetting process is created by people who have a better understanding of what's happening out there and who may may indeed be in need of support versus who a business owner might want under their leased roof Uh, anything else before we say goodbye this morning Mark? Yeah yeah have a look at that Patty from what I understood you know there was there was discussion on who is going to go in, and my understanding from what was said was this wasn't just going to be anybody anybody going in. Um, so ha- have a look, have a look back. I will do the same, and look for some quotes. Um, I guess lastly, I, I've been I've been uh, helping out Kim Churchill, who's the candidate for Conception Bay's, Bay's Bell Island, uh, knocking on doors. Um, in a by-election, you know, people don't always get super excited about about uh, politics um but in this one i've i've heard from a number of people who want change and uh you know what i've been able to say with with my experience in in helping people from political offices uh you know what i think will will make a good politician is somebody like kim and kim is the reason the three reasons for that is kim is smart kim works hard and kim cares about people and you know, I, I think that we've we're, we've got somebody who can do the job and can really impact the future of the province. So I, I'm urging folks in Conception Bay East and Bell Island to uh, to vote Kim today. I, I think she's going to do a great job, and I think what we need right now is a strong opposition because, as I said, we're we're just not seeing government move fast enough and make the correct decisions that are going to be long-lasting. I think fiscally, Patty, like, if you do things right the first time, it's cheaper generally. And we're not seeing we're not seeing government do the right things. I know that this, specifically this hotel option, is going to cost a lot more than $21 million over three years. And then we have nothing after three years. So, uh, you know. Fair questions to be asked, which I spoke to uh, many, many times here on the show. So until we get them, you know, I don't, I'm pretty sure that people don't care if I think one thing is a good idea or not, but 
the fact of the matter is, I don't even really know what to say about this until we get all of the questions that need to be asked and answered uh, in place. And at this point, we don't. And so, you know, my thoughts, and these are a couple of behind-closed-door meetings that I'm not privy to, but I hear a few rumbles with my ear to the wall, is things like people who have been proven to be particularly problematic in other shelter situations, whether it be through violence or otherwise, maybe they'll be vetted out versus someone who might have complex medical uh, mental uh, issues and or addictions because that's the place for them. With the availability on site of those wraparound supports and services, that's ideal. For folks who cannot control their behaviors, especially when we talk about violence, then of course that could be just you know derailing all the good work that could take place inside the Comfort Inn. And when and if there's going to be the requirement of whatever oversight, monitoring, security, not to say we're creating you know a quasi-penitentiary, but it's got to be safe. Because if it's not, then we're going right back down the road of the uh, features and the feelings that people get about emergency shelters. That cannot be the outcome here. It would just be a complete waste of time and money, which is both are too valuable to be wasted. I'm off to the news, Mark. Appreciate the time. Yeah, and I think we just like let's see the contract. Let's see what's let's let's answer these questions quickly. Because I, I think I mean with with wraparound supports existing from nine to five, Patty, that's not when the problems happen. We're seeing eviction after eviction right now and we're seeing people going into shelters and not being happy and moving and you know, moving around and, and issues not being dealt with. So it, it's got we gotta see those wraparound supports uh, evolve in this province. Appreciate the time. Thanks, time. Thanks Mark. All right, bye bye. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Jim and Sean, you guys are next. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line five. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning. Uh, before I get into what I want to talk about, um, just, a, just a heads up for anyone who's got a shovel in their hands today. And, the, and in the rest of the winter, um, you know, take take long, deep breaths. I know everyone's in a hurry these days, but you, but being in a hurry and shoveling could end up hurrying you off to the health science. And we've all known people who've uh, ended up that way. And I just wanted to bring that out uh, this morning. Okay. Um, the second thing is that uh, that poor lady, the second woman uh, who was in the car at uh, at Arnold's Cove uh, last week had passed away yesterday afternoon. It's a terrible tragedy to have two two aspiring young women killed like that. And, and we don't know yet what happened except that uh, uh, two vehicles collided. Although the RCMP have, have said that there's been uh, uh, suggestions that alcohol was involved in the other driver, the other vehicle. And I hope not, but if it was, we really have to, as I said a few days ago, we really must clamp down on this. this this is such a tragedy needless tragedy um, anyway so unfortunately the, the clamping down part like the province of Quebec is really quite stern on this issue. They even have different acceptable levels of blood alcohol content is 0.05 in that province versus 0.08 in the rest of the country. Their fines and punishment are much more severe. But unfortunately, it doesn't really make that huge of a difference because people make terrible decisions sometimes, especially when they're under the influence. So, you know, the story that I read about the person who's got the most drunk driving convictions in the country, there's a guy in Quebec, uh, unfortunately, has some 35, buddy in B.C. with 20 
21. I mean, these are just alarming numbers. So the thought inside the article I wrote is that auto manufacturers are currently working on, and it's probably the best idea, is that there's going to be sensors in the vehicle, whether it be to uh, you know test the sweat off your hands on the steering wheel, whether it be with a sensor that can actually uh, detect the amount of alcohol based on your breath, just like a breathalyzer. That might be the only the only recourse here because it's a societal ill and it's not getting any better. And you can change the laws all you want for people who are willing and wanting to get behind the wheel when they know they're drunk, whether it be fifteen hundred dollars or twenty five hundred dollars. Not so sure that's going to be the decision making factor. But I like the whole concept of the auto manufacturers getting in on this. Uh, well, unfortunately, it's going to take a while before that happens. It takes the auto manufacturers a long time to put this kind of technology in, in like in all vehicles. But yes, look, I, I like I'm like you. I'd like to see it happen tomorrow. But in the meantime, I think deterrence, more discussion about it, uh, and uh, but mainly deterrence. You know, for for a lot of people going out there, they do think about it when they're going to lose their license for a year or lose their car that you're paying five hundred dollars or a truck five hundred dollars on it a month plus their insurance and all the rest of it. The most sensible people uh, who who made the wrong decision to try and get home instead of uh, finding another way or staying where you are. Uh, you know, we'll probably look at that and say, I don't want that to be me. My job's so important. I can't afford to lose my vehicle, yada, yada, yada. Okay. Um, so, yes, look, 100%, Patty. Uh, look, yesterday, a woman who was almost 100 years old, who was a, who was a, a servant to her community, uh, a, a, great, uh, a great mentor for her four children, uh, was, uh, was, was laid to rest after a beautiful celebration of life at the Basilica. And, uh, of course, you know her as Tara Williams or Teresita Williams. And she was the Premier's uh, mother and also Nancy's mother uh, and also Eddie's number or a mother and also uh, Tommy, Tommy Jr., named after his father. And um, it was a beautiful ceremony. But I wanted to bring out this, that the service to her community, you know, it's a great loss when you, uh, like, even at her age, uh, of almost 100. This wasn't too far off that. Uh, you know, the, the service that, that women in our community, great mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers, uh, you know, uh, put put on or, or teach their children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, you know, as, as mentors, it's so important for us to 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 look up to and to uh, think about uh, as as these women go through their lives and we lose them like this. But she had a well, we had a great or there was a celebration of life for her and her only sister, a surviving uh, sibling was there, Isabel Goodridge, and uh, and many friends, uh, relatives, and so on. But it was it was remarkable that the whole or many of the Fury family was there. The premier was there with his wife. Uh, you know, Mr. Williams is no longer premier. He's a former premier, but he's no longer premier. And, you know, uh, also his father was there and his mother. Uh, his father, everyone would know, just retired as a speaker in the House of Commons in Ottawa. Tremendous job he did there. And uh, and many others. Uh, I also saw the current leader of the PC party. I didn't see Jim Denny. He might have been there, but I didn't see him. Uh, but, you know, the, the eulogy... Uh, put forward, forth by her daughter Nancy was terrific. It talked about service to others, service to your family, uh, always thinking through the community, be involved in politics. You know, it really guides where we're going. You know, it wasn't that long ago where, where, where you'd never see a woman in politics, and now we're we're seeing more and more, and it's getting getting to where it's equal, and it's wonderful to see. And uh, and, I, and I commend uh, her for for all of her work 
uh, within the uh, uh, within the political establishment to to help have a say, which everybody has. If you know, if you're of a certain age, you have your say, and this is a good day to do it. You know, to have your say down in Portugal called St. Phillips. And, and unless you go there and you're willing to put the X where, where you feel it would do the most good for our province, then you really didn't use your your right and, you know, have a say. So I was thinking about this morning as I was thinking about calling up. I wanted to to uh, to mention that the Premier was there and others, many others were there uh, who, who were there to support that family. And, you know, uh, people say politics is dirty. Well, you know, what it comes down to, to, uh, to families, we all have different opinions on things. You know, when it all comes down to it, I don't believe that people are, are, are that way. I think we support the service that others give, and God knows that family gave great service to our community and our province. Well, I, can, today, I can tell you what, there's lots of good people who may have considered politics in years past, but it's becoming, it's all, always was a pretty brutal place to operate, but now I think, you know, especially with the advent of social media and whatnot, I can't imagine a lot of good people who once considered it would ever go near it because it's thankless. It's beyond thankless. It's well, toxic. Well, you know, my father was in there for, for quite a few years. And, it's a long and, time ago, uh, though, now, Sean, right? And, Long time ago, and I was going to say that it was a long time ago, and uh, but you know, be, be, behind the scenes, it wasn't very easy. I can trust me. I could think of some things I can't say here, but you know, some things that went on back in those days. But I'll yeah. say this: you know, congratulations to all the candidates who are offering themselves. But I know Fred Hutton per, uh, personally, and on the heels of your last caller, I thought that you know what, it wouldn't be right if I didn't bring up the fact that you know Fred Hutton has has a fellow journalist and many other things he's done in his life. Uh, and uh, you know how hard it is in journalism to, to try and get the news and get the story, and you gotta dig hard, get people to be quoted on things. That's one of the hardest things, because once it's in the media, it, it's there. It's pretty hard to turn, uh, to turn that around. So, you know, I can't help but say that, you know, I, I believe this, that, uh, that, that Fred Hutton would, uh, would do an exemplary job in that district, not only because he's, he's on the government side. I think he'd do a great job on either side. But, you know, I, I can't help but okay. reach out and just say to the people down there that if I were living in that district, uh, you know, given, given, given all that I've seen Fred do, I don't know the other candidates at all, so I can't speak for them. That's the only reason I can't. I'm okay. sure I and I know they're good candidates. But I thought I should reach out and, and, and give right. a thought to Fred, and, a, and I think the community would be very well served by him. Thanks, Sean. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Uh, very quickly on behalf of a listener. So if you were at the um, uh, manuals, Tim Hortons, uh, this morning, the fellow here has lost his cell phone. It was in a black case. If you picked it up, maybe you brought it back in to the counter. Or if you have it, you give us a call. We'll try to connect Mark or reconnect Mark with his lost cell phone in the parking lot at Tim Hortons this morning. Okay, let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Jim, you're on the air. Hello. Hi there. Yeah, okay, Jim. From Goose Bay. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind, Jim? All right. It's just kind of a joke, I guess. Toyota warned, this is the headlines, Toyota warned 7,300 Canadians to stop driving their car. Yep. They've got, they've got a Toyota airbag problem. Yep. This is not a new story either. The original recall was back in 2015. Yes, it goes way back. We've been getting letters and all that sort of thing, but it doesn't, it's never been uh, written or said that this could kill you. 
if it if it blows up the wrong way, I guess. The trouble is, in Goose Bay, we're over 500 clicks from the dealer to have it fixed. And uh, for somebody reaching, you know, old age or actually into it, you don't drive there. You just don't jump in the car and, and take it down there. What I've brought up with Toyota, and I've talked to him more than once about it, is send your man up here to Goose Bay. I'll put him up, no problem. I'll pick him up at the plane and everything else and take him back and let a, a Toyota man do it. But the real answer is one of the garages, one of the dealers here in Goose Bay can deal with this probably in 15 minutes. It's not a big deal for a trained uh, mechanic. I don't know why they can't get their heads together and get one or all of the, the uh, dealers up here in Goose Bay to uh, fix this Toyota problem. I suppose that would be a corporate liability issue. So when you suggested they send someone to you, what did they say? No? Well, he said, I'll get back to you, and that's in probably a year. <laughs> they just, they're not going to do that, I don't think. And Well, the car was bought in Deer, uh, Deer Lake or Cornerbrook, I'm not sure which one. The woman that owns it got her son to go down and buy it because she wasn't going to drive that far, you know, a past middle-aged lady. That's too far, but the Toyota's is such a good car. You know, there's nothing wrong with it in eight or ten years, uh, except this. I don't know. I just thought I'd come on and uh, bring this on the air. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, and again, this recall is almost eight years old at this moment in time. They're calling it the largest automotive recall in history. There's some 34 million defective airbags. And this company, that the parent company of Toyota, Takata, they say, or Takata, some of their uh, their documentation says that some 30, million, or 30 people, pardon me, have been killed by an exploding airbag. Their airbags. So I guess it has happened. So there's 7,300 Canadians that were told, stop driving and get it done. But it's easier said than done if you live as far away as you do from the closest Toyota dealer. Well, there, you know, this is the problem here. And uh, I'd go at it myself, but I don't want it blowing up my face and I got no expertise in, you know, airbags or anything like that. But, but we've got people here in Goose Bay, plenty licensed, good mechanics, and I know they could fix that in a few minutes. Yeah, it's a replacement uh, in full. So, and it's not every Toyota either. It's the 0304 Corolla, the same year for the Matrix, and an older RAV4, I think it was 0405 RAV4s, that have the Takata airbag inflators. So, you just go to uh, Toyota's website if you're concerned as to whether or not it applies to your vehicle. But that recall is old, and apparently people were just saying, nope, not doing it. Well, Hondas has got there's some Hondas mixed up in it, and even Chryslers. Yeah, that's it's right. That same airbag. Yeah, Takata Corp is huge. Yeah, but anyway, that's uh, I just I you know take your chances. I guess that's it. I had a, a recall on my uh, Ford, but it was just 15 minutes, and that was the steering. They fixed that up, no sweat. Ford dealer here. So. 
Yeah, and if, if I remember even back in 2015 when that initial recall, because that company didn't just supply airbags for Honda and Toyota. There was 10 or 11 or 12 automakers recalled their cars to replace those airbags too. There was something like almost 40 million vehicles worldwide had that recall applied. So that's pretty massive number. Uh, Jim, anything else wow. this morning? Pardon me? Anything? Would you like to say anything else this morning? No. Well, the, oh, yeah, this... Uh, this is just one of the funny things that you live through, go through with life and cars. You know, back back in the fifty years ago, when I started driving, uh, you could fix most of the problems on them yourself with an adjustable wrench and a hammer. But they sure have changed <laughs> nowadays. Yeah, backyard mechanics, no use anymore. They've got all this high-tech, uh, not only tools, but plug-ins for computer sensors and stuff. Yeah, it's impossible. Yeah, it is. I think if I was buying another new one, I'd have to go to a car show and uh, get one that's been rebuilt from back in the 70s. <laughs> get some old, good old muscle. Yeah. Appreciate the okay. call, Jim. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep going. Let's go to line number two. Dave, you're on the air. Hello. Hi there. How are you, Patty? Excellent. How about you? Good. I'm in David, by the way, not Gabe. It's Dave. I, it's always the phones up here in Brunswick Cove. You know how it is. So what's your name, sorry? Dave. Yeah, Dave. David. You, call, you call me David. Otherwise, call me David, you know. Okay, David, welcome to the show. What's on your mind? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm just, I'm a new voter in Portugal Cove. Um, uh, I'm voting for the, in the new MHA election, right? The upcoming by-election? The by-election today, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm just, uh, I'd like to say I'm a, I'm a proud PC, and uh, I'm, a, I'm voting team in this upcoming election I'm a first-time voter, and uh, I've had a lot of people come to the door, right, you know? And uh, I've just, I, re I respect everyone, but I've just found Tina has the most energy. She's super excited to do this. Um, she's very, like, she's always laughing, always wanting to meet the families, and and uh, from what I've heard, right? And uh, it looks really good. So uh, you're just old enough now to vote for the first time, if I'm understanding this? Yeah. And yeah. what makes you PC? Just curious, because, you know, there's all these thoughts about political ideology and the big differences between the parties. When we're, when we're talking on the provincial front, I'm not so sure there's huge differences. So what makes you a PC? Well, it's it's interesting you say that, because, like, I'm a, I'm young, right? And, uh, like, 18. <laughs> and um, um, I, I'm on TikTok a lot, and so are a lot of people. And Pierre Pialyev, the, the federal, um, he's running in the federal. And, uh, no, um... Well, it's just, I, I just see a lot of things uh, like um, about carbon taxes and senior health care and stuff like that. And I want to be an advocate for that, right? I'm a new driver and I want to get less friggin' gas prices. I don't want to pay $2.50 at the pump. And uh, my Nana, and she's in a wheelchair and I want to make sure she has good home care for um, her when uh, that time comes, right? So all those things some of those are provincial some of those are federal and yeah. you know I, I do think there's a distinct difference between the provincial and the federal conservative party even in the name alone there's a built-in difference but uh, some people will just be you know dyed in the wool one way or the other hey and that's up to you if people want to vote for whatever party fair enough good enough yeah. for me because your vote your time your ex 
Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you took the opportunity as a first-time voter to do exactly that. Not enough people will. You know, I'm curious to, of course, find out who wins, but I'm also, and I'm always curious about what the voter turnout looks like. Generally, in by-elections, it's pretty terrible. So I guess we'll get the numbers tomorrow morning to talk about. Absolutely, Patty. Appreciate the time. Thanks for this. I really like the show, by the way. I, I really listened a few times. I'm really interested in the politics and stuff like that, and it's a great show to learn. Well, I'm glad you tuned in, and I appreciate making time as a first-time voter and caller. Stay in touch. Cheers. Cheers. Thank uh, you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Old enough to vote gets out and votes. Not bad. I guess we'll all find out in due course. The polls close at 8 p.m. this evening. I don't imagine it's going to take too, too long to tally the votes in a by-election down at Conception Bay, East Bell Island. Uh, Dave, give us a guess on voter turnout. What percentage of registered voters do you think are coming out here tonight or today? Today in advance polls. 35, not far off what I was going to guess. I had about 38 in mind. Anyway, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all the callers, listeners, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.